You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Investigations for the Experiencer Support Association and the former National Chief Investigator for MUFON Canada and the former International Field Investigator Trainer for MUFON in general. Welcome to the channel and thank you for joining us this evening. Tonight's guest is a UFO researcher and author, one of the most significant players in UFO disclosure within Canada and, uh, and among other countries. Our guest for season four, episode 23, is Grant Cameron. Grant Cameron became involved in ufology as the Vietnam War ended in May 1975 with a personal sighting of a UFO-type object, which was locally known as Charlie Red Star. The sighting occurred in, in Carmen, Manitoba, about 25 miles north of Canada of the Canada-U.S. border, and these sightings led to a decade of research into the early work done by the Canadian government into the flying saucer phenomenon. From here, Cameron proceeded to do almost two decades of research into the role of the President of the United States in the UFO mystery. Most of that research can be found at the President's UFO website, which is www.beyondpresidentufo.com, presidentialufo.com, pardon me, beyondpresidentialufo.com. Cameron co-authored books on the government UFO cover-up called UFOs, MJ-12, and the government, along with UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants, Managing Magic, the Alien Bedtime Storybook, Tuned In, The Paranormal World of Music, and Inspired the Paranormal World of Creativity. He has just released the book Contact Modalities, The Keys of the Universe, 
and two books on Mount Shasta called Experiencers with uh, the Non-Ordinary and UFOs and Portals at Mount Shasta. Also known, also now out is the Canadian government UFO story and Triangle's UFOs, an updated edition of UFOs Area 51 and government informants have just been released. Cameron now also runs a daily podcast called the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast that looks at all aspects of the paranormal in an attempt to better understand ultimate reality. Links to his work can be found in the descriptions below. In my opinion, Cameron is the most knowledgeable source of information in Canada uh, and in this fight for disclosure, and it's a great pleasure to welcome him to our show tonight. So, Grant, put on your tinfoil hat. We're about to go down a rabbit hole. How are you doing this evening? Just fine, Ryan. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate your interest in what I do. Yeah, no worries. I appreciate uh, I appreciate what you're doing too. It's a, it's a, it's nice to have a fellow Canadian, you know, and uh, that uh, I like. I said, in my opinion, that might actually know everything, but but not but can't tell us everything, you know. So it is a pleasure to be here one on one, and I appreciate that. Um, so we normally start the show with an icebreaker. Is, uh, which with CC has prepared for me. So I'm just going to play our little jingle here. All right. So her question is, a humanoid being knocks on your front door and asks you to follow them now. And with no other information, what do you, what do, you do? Uh, I would absolutely follow. I've, I've, I haven't had the opportunity, but I would uh, absolutely follow. I mean, I, that's the main thing to me is, this has always been a chess game to me. It's always been trying to figure out what's going on. I don't need anybody's money. I don't need anybody's, you know, con, you know, uh, congratulations or whatever. To me, it's like a, a chess game. I watch all the moves on the chessboard, and whenever I think it'll help me get an answer, that's what I'll do. Because that's what happened when I, I had no intention of doing UFOs. I mean, I've said this many times. Uh, I just happened to go out because everybody else was seeing stuff. And I said, let's go and see what they're looking at. And the thing flew right in front of the car. And the next night it, or two nights later it flew right at me. And um, I published a manuscript in which I described the hundreds of sightings that occurred in this small town. And the local publisher said, Mr. Cameron, you may believe in this kind of stuff. Count me among the unbelievers. And I went, what? I, I couldn't believe it. So all I was interested in is the second night when I saw this thing, it came right at us and then it made this left-hand turn and it sort of flew off into the distance. And I remember looking at it almost like the alien coming to the front door. I was looking at it and I said, man, that could, that could actually be for another planet. I thought, wow. I mean, I was so honored to actually have been able to see this thing. And then I said to myself, what's it doing? It, it wasn't doing anything. It was just flying along through the sky. And, and I, I often ask people that when they have a UFO sighting. I say, so what was it doing? And they go, it wasn't doing anything. It was just flying along. It was just there. It just happened to appear and then it disappeared. And, and then I'll say, do you think it, it wanted you to see it? And they'll say, yeah, I think so. And so to me, it was when that thing was flying away and I said, what's it doing? That was all I was interested in is what is that thing that I saw? And I knew that I, as some you know small town Canadian guy, wouldn't know the answer, but I figured somebody had to know. So I spent my entire life chasing the people that I thought would have the answer to the question, what's actually going on. And I've spent basically my entire life since I was 21 years old, chasing the story of what was that thing I saw the second night. Have you seen anything since that's similar to that? 
Well, I had five close-up sightings in 1975-1976. And since then, I really haven't seen anything, really didn't want to see anything. Usually when people have UFO sky watches, I always say, now nah, I don't want to see anything. And then I'll go to, the, they'll talk me into going to the sky watch and they'll be sitting there arguing with some light way up in the sky. It's a planet, it's a star, whatever. And I go, really? This is what you're looking at? I said, man, if you'd seen what I seen in 1975, you'd be going to bed just like I'm going to bed. Good night. And I just take off. I, just, I have not seen anything even close to what I saw in 75. I've seen a couple of things that I couldn't identify. Uh, I saw one after a UFO meeting we had in South Winnipeg which was pretty bizarre, but it, it was a sort of a or, or yellowish thing. It wasn't round. It was a weird type, type sh- uh, shape. And then the one that I did see that I had I'd forgotten about for years, I was good friends with uh, Angela Joyner. I don't know if you followed. She was the one that broke the Stevensville, Texas story. And when I retired in 2010, I went to her. She, she was going to help me write a book on the presidents. So I went to her house and we were there and Randall, her husband, came home and he said, get out here, get out here, come and look at this. And it was daytime and this object was there and it didn't look like a saucer, it didn't look like a ball. It was a, it was an object. I can't remember exactly what it looked like, but it was daytime. And we were standing there looking at this object and it was flying along and it just flew off. And uh, we never thought to take a camera and photograph it. And then about maybe two minutes later, the jet fighters came right in behind it. And headed and it was heading towards Dallas. She lived in uh, south of Dallas, and this thing was heading towards Dallas. And I'd forgotten about that story for years. But I, what I saw in '75 was pretty definitive. It was um, there was because I remember we were out there and we were looking around and we were saying, "What's everybody looking at?" We were looking at these stars and we were looking at the planets, and we really couldn't see where people were. What what we were getting all excited about because it was in the local paper and they the local TV station had gotten a video of it. So if you know the, the Nimitz story of the object dropping from 80,000 feet down to sea level in seven-eighths of a second, well, the camera that was caught, CKY TV, captured this, and it's actually on, a, on at least one documentary. Uh, it captured this thing jumping from the ground up into 5,000 feet in three frames of film. So one-eighth of a second, it jumped 5,000 feet. And they caught this on film, and that's why I went out there. So we were looking around, we are saying, well, what are they looking at is, you know, is... And whatever I said, you know, whatever they're looking at, it's not significant. You know, we could see Venus setting or I didn't even know what we're looking at. And then it was when we went out of town and my friend said, "Okay, we'll go back into town one more time. We don't see anything. Let's go home. And that's when I said, yeah, great. This has been a total waste of time. Yeah, let's 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 go home. And he turned the car around and this thing appeared and everybody in the car said, there it is. Nobody said, oh, is that what they're looking at? I wonder if that's what it is. Everybody knew instinctively. This is whatever he's looking at. It was just so bizarre. It was in so close. It was down low in front of the car. It flew right in front of the car. It was pulsing. It looked like it was alive. It was a plasma type object. And I remember getting out of the car. The car was still moving. I was so excited. I was trying to get out of the car because it was going in behind these school buses. And I wanted to see, I wanted to get to the school buses so I could watch the thing fly. And it just slowly pulsed. It just flew off and flew off into the into the distance. And then there's the second night we went out and I took all my friends out there and and they were all there. And then they said, oh, no, okay, we're going home. And I said, no, no, you got to see this thing, man. This thing will change your life. You got to see this thing. And I still remember they said, ah, no, nah, no, nah, we're going back to Winnipeg. We're going back to Winnipeg for pizza. We're hungry. And they all got in their cars and they all took off. And I went, well, come on. And then 15 minutes later, this thing appeared. 
and it was jumping around the sky eight inches in the field of vision. It was just like like a, a flash, 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 flash all over the place. And I remember there was a car beside us, and it was like a it was like a football game where you know it's like the end of the end of the thing, and they're about to score a touchdown. It was like that. It was like people swearing and yelling, and as this thing was flashing and it was jumping around the sky. And this 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 girl was in the and it was a it was a courier car. This girl couldn't see it. I remember she was crying. She said, I can't see it. I can't see it. Someone showed me. And everybody was yelling. Everybody just ignored her. And the guy had, at that time, they had, uh, had just invented uh, motor drives for, for 35 millimeter cameras that would advance the film. So I could still remember this guy had the film and I could just hear this girl was crying and the, the camera was going, it was going, and he was unloading the camera as this thing was coming towards us. And it, the flash got closer together. And then it was the same object that I saw the first night. It was this red pulsing object. So that's where I talk. I've just written a paper talking about nature reality. And what I say is I have a friend who uh, has just was just at a, uh, an event. And he was he, he told me he was shown a classified U.S. military film that had a UFO morphing on it. And uh, they were shown this film. And that's what I saw the first night was this object. It was one object when it started. It was another object when it finally arrived. And in 76, I had an object that was that was one object when it when I first saw it and it turned into a triangle. It was not a triangle when I first saw it. And that's the whole idea that I say, if you have UFOs morphing that can change shape, that changes, everything. changes the whole game. Yeah, because like uh, well, you need gotta understand physics to explain one and do that, but when it changes it in the middle of everything, that's yeah, that's kind of game over. Yeah, that's when you start to question reality, and that's what in this latest paper I wrote about, and I've had people come to me uh, describing this that when they when they get abducted, they they go on board the ship and thirty the ship is thirty feet across on the outside, and they get inside and it's the size of a, a basketball stadium. Or Terry Lovelace, if you ever interviewed him, said it was the size of a football stadium on the inside. And the outside was just a small object. Smaller, yeah. I've and and, and Hal Putoff talked about that. And that's been, apparently, that was even shown when they when they uh, first uh, had crashed saucers, that they would have these things on the ground. And these people would be totally blown away that they, they would go inside this saucer that was 20 feet across. And they got inside. And the thing was huge on the inside. And they would come out and they would, you know, do the measurements and stuff. And it was just something that absolutely defies reality, which comes to, down to the fact, you know, if time and space are uh, human constructs, how big is the universe? What's the universe really made out of? And you start looking at, and that's, I think, what the UFO phenomenon is telling us. It's like the chess game. So when I'm playing a game of chess, and when I was pretty young, I was playing at a very high level. And I sort of quit because I didn't want to lose playing chess. But I, I would play. But the, the idea that to me is to watch the chess game is you watch what Ryan's doing and I watch every move you make and I do not move a piece until I know why you move that piece. I got to mm -hmm. figure out why, what are you actually intending to do? That's when you can set traps and stuff. So that's why I always looked at the UFO thing is the anomalies. And, and Gary Nolan talks about that. Gary Nolan will talk about the 5% of the stuff that falls outside the bell curve. That's the stuff that's going to tell you what's going on. It's the anomalies that tell you you've got something wrong in physics. If these things are morphing, we don't under we something we don't understand. We we we're assuming that we've got all the pieces, and all we need is one more piece to put in the the puzzle, and we're going to figure it out. And what I what I've come to discover is, as as I was told, and I had some I had some intuitive downloads. What I was told not only is what you got wrong, it's exactly the opposite of what you think it is. 
And that's what people, I think, have to come to realize is that a lot of the stuff we believe in physics, a lot of the stuff we believe is wrong. If it weren't wrong, there would be no UFOs. UFOs would not be appearing. They're showing us anomalies. And, and that's how you win Nobel Prizes. That's how you get discoveries is to figure out the anomaly, to assume that we've got something wrong and figure out what have we got wrong. And then you can start to move on. But everybody wants to sort of use classical physics to figure this thing out. And I say it's going to be a thousand times more complex than people think it is. It's going to be way more spiritual than people think it is. It's going to be way less physical than people think it is. And it's not going to have a hint of capitalism. I always say that, that it's, it's this very, very complex phenomenon. Even Jacques Vallée talks. It's absurd. And when you start looking at UFO stuff, it is absolutely absurd. Some of the stuff that goes on, some of the stuff that you see. But it's just indicating to us that we've got something wrong. We're at like 1491. We believe the world is flat because it looks flat. We believe the sun goes around the earth because it looks like it's going around the earth. We believe there's only 5,000 stars. People tend to forget that when quantum physics was discovered, when Einstein discovered the theory of relativity, all those guys, all those very smart quantum physicists all believed there was only one galaxy. It wasn't until 1925 that the second galaxy was discovered. And like UFOs, when, this, when Hubble discovered the second galaxy, they fought him. There's a big debate to fight him that it was a, a gas cloud. Get your head straightened out. This, there's no other galaxies. This is a gas cloud. And he was fought at every step of the way trying to introduce the idea that there's two galaxies. And that's what we've got to realize. We didn't discover the electron until 1899. We didn't discover the, the photon until 1917. Uh, and uh, the things like that, that we, we think we've got it all figured out. We've got to realize we haven't got anything figured out. There's a lot of stuff that we've got wrong. Otherwise, this phenomena would not be happening. Now, does anyone have it figured out? Like, I mean, like there's a no. lot of chaos here, but some something needs to control that. So if we don't understand that, we can't comprehend it. Uh, we, we're trying to engineer and replicate and do all these things from what we observe and what, what, what we know. But is it its own entity doing the, uh, doing its own thing or like is someone aware of it and has control of it what's your what are your thoughts on that well i that's what i always said when when i first had my thing i knew i wasn't going to figure it out but i said somebody's got to be able to figure it out that's why i went to the canadian government so I, I studied what the canadian government knew because and it was a synchronicity there's a lot of these synchronicities that drag me into this drag me into that i don't think it's i don't think it was by chance that that i saw the ufo first and i, I can get into that story later but uh, my father was a pilot for the canadian government he was former US, Royal Canadian Air Force. Then he was a pilot, flew around Paul Hellier. He was the Department of Transport. He was an aviation inspector, inspecting runways and stuff. So he had his own plane and stuff. And uh, one of the people in his office had a sighting. And I went there. And here's you see these bizarre synchronicities. His name was Ernie Epp. He was a radar technician in my father's office. And I went there. And it was just a, a light in the sky. It was at the Charlie Red Star. So I was gathering stories for the book. And it was just a light in the sky. And then he said to me, he says, you know, you don't know what's going on with UFOs. You should study what the Canadian government was was doing. He says, I used to work for them. I said, you did? He said, yeah, I worked for Wilbur Smith. And he said he was the smartest engineer I ever met in my life, but he was totally crazy. And he had, he had he was talking to aliens and they were landing in his backyard. And I said, what? Are you kidding me? And so that's when I went to Ottawa to interview Wilbur Smith's wife. Wilbur Smith had died. And that's when I realized that there are people who have some answers. And I, I talked, I was one of the first people to put out the, the, the Avery list in the 1990s. And that was where I say, there are a bunch of people out there that you can agree with them or disagree with them, but you better listen to what they say. And these, this would include Hal Putoff, Eric Davis, Kit Green, Jacques Vallée, 
uh, Gary Nolan, that if you listen to their interviews, you listen very carefully, you take notes, you'll realize that they, they from time to time, they will say things that, that um, slip out. And that's what happened to the Canadian government. If you look back at the Canadian government, this whole idea that we don't understand what's going on. If you take a look back at the Canadian government, one of the things that was in the top secret memo, the only one of the few top secret memos ever published in the UFO field was written by a Canadian. That was where Wilbur Smith talked about flying saucers. He was told by American officials, not people on the street, by American officials. He was he was a high, high level Canadian guy. He ran what was called Radio Ottawa. He was intercepting Russian communications. He ran the, the communication stations like he was the NSA of Canada outside of Ottawa at Shirley's Bay. So he had this very high security clearance and he was talking to American officials and he said they were told they told me flying saucers exist. So this is 1950. Flying saucers exist. It's the most highly classified subject in the United States. There's a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush that are trying to figure out how this thing operates. And it's of tremendous significance to the Americans. And then the very next line, he says, and we were also told by American officials that other things might be associated with the flying saucers, such as mental phenomena. And they aren't doing very well because they said, if we're working on the problem, they're willing to exchange credentials with us and talk to us about it. And that was something that would come up later in 1991 when we were talking to Dr. Eric Walker. And at one point he cut us off. And he said, hey, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And the guy who was asking a question had no idea. He said, look, unless you understand about ESP and how it works, you will not be taken in by the control group. Very few people understand how it works. Then two years later, Ben Rich is asked by Jan Harson, the head of MUFON, he's asked, how did, how did they get here? He said, I had a sighting when I was a little kid. I'm interested in propulsion. How do they get here? And Ben Rich turns around and asks him exactly the same question that Walker asked, exactly the same thing the Canadians brought up in 1950. He said, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And Jan Hartson says, uh, it means everything in time and space is connected. So that's how it works. And he walks off, gets in his car and drives away. And then you get Tom, De- Tom DeLong, goes to Lockheed. He's at the meeting with Lockheed before... Uh, Weiss, the head of Lockheed, comes out. He's talking to the head scientist and some other guy. And the head scientist said, all I want to know is, how does this thing work? How do they get here? And he was hanging around with Greer at the time. So he says, oh, I think consciousness is involved. And he said, now you're talking. And and DeLong said that's all he wanted to talk about for 45 minutes was consciousness. So that's when you hear you get these little insights that these people talk about consciousness. Mm-hmm. The fact that this has got something to do with it. And that so you listen to how put off, you listen to Eric Davis. And, and so uh, I'll give you another example. I was the first one to get to leak the Wilson leak document onto the internet. I had a friend, an AI friend and a guy from the Pentagon who had decided how it was going to be done. And, and I decided I could leak the document, but he said, give me a copy of it. And you, I said, do you want to see it? Sure. I'll give you a copy. And then he phoned me up from an elevator in Chicago and he says, Oh, by the way, I just want to let you know, I think that document you gave me, I think it's on the internet now. And that's when they put it on the internet. And it wasn't discovered till months later when, when Dolan discovered it. Some of the young guns had it, but they were afraid to leak it as well. And anyway, in that document, what happened was like there was um, the document, the, the, the whole thing is based upon uh, Oak Shannon. So Oak Shannon is setting up this meeting for Eric Davis. So I knew Eric Davis back in 2002 when this whole thing broke. I knew Eric Davis when he was first laid off by NIDS. He was very upset. He was telling me all this stuff about NIDS and about the meetings that they had with Eric, with all the the, the, the guys like uh, Kit Green and all these guys and what they were doing at NIDS and stuff like that. And uh, so 
he told me, he gave me a document, which I still have not uh, put on the internet because he told me I have to wait till Oak Shannon dies and Oak Shannon is still alive. He thought Oak Shannon was going to die very soon. That was 20 years ago. And oh, this, wow. this me, this, so when the, the, the Wilson leak document le leaked, when I first saw it, I saw Oak Shannon's name on the top. And I said, this is a legitimate document because I knew the connection that Oak Shannon and Eric Davis were good friends. Nobody else even knew who Oak Shannon was. And that's, that's the thing is you collect these names and you listen to these people and you listen to what they're saying because these guys may have an insight. They may have gotten little pieces. And that's where they gather together. They're called the Invisible College or the Avery or these different names they call themselves. And that's what they do is these people gather together and they share stories. And from time to time, you'll get on an email list with them and you'll see little things that they've discovered and they'll, they'll talk about. So, yeah, there are people who understand a lot more than you and I understand and you have to understand who they are and then listen very carefully. You don't have to agree with them or disagree with them, but listen very carefully. There are people who understand pieces of the puzzle. And it's, it's always been, it's been a challenge for, for me with um, observing and listening to all this as well, because uh, like I'm a licensed investigator, I can't act on hearsay. So there's a lot of trust that goes in to these circles. Everyone could be saying all these things that make sense, but they all could also be lying at the same time. And you, you have the experience, you have the knowledge, you've been doing this a lot longer. So the trust has been established. Uh, you know, it's not that easy for me to just be like, that's what's going on. But I do understand the consciousness connection. And that took me a while to figure that out because i started out with ufos too just nuts and bolts and blah 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 and things just weren't making sense this was just too easy there's more comp there's more going on there's beings involved uh you know there's paranormal there's ghosts it's all connected and all these other things um and and then i had like a you know a kind of a, a download kind of type experience as well and then that kind of like just connected it for me so i want to kind of come back to the whole like you started out with sightings yeah and I remember when I started in, uh, started asking you questions about sightings because I was trying to get some information about, you know, where to go from here and things like that, too. Uh, you told me that you stopped doing sightings a long time ago, roughly around the same time. Was that around the time that you had your your intuitive download, as you mentioned? No, no I, the time I stopped doing sightings is when the local publisher said, Mr. Cameron, you may believe in this kind of stuff. Count me among the unbelievers. And I had gathered all these sightings yeah. from all these witnesses. And I thought, oh, this is great. And. And then I realized these are just stories that, that, that people tell. Yeah. And there's really, the sightings will lead you to a position where you can confirm, yeah, there's something going on. These people mm -hmm. are seeing stuff. But in terms of figuring out what's actually going on, there's not much you can tell from a light in the sky or an object in the sky, especially if it's morphing. If this right. video that I was told about is, is a legitimate video, yeah. a military video of a, a thing morphing, then you really can't trust what you're seeing. It's almost like when you see the sightings, Jacques Vallée sort of points this out as well. You'll take a look at the sightings from 1895. They're wooden ships with propellers and sails. And they're flying around with guys hanging off ropes and they say they're from Mars and stuff like that. And then they go to the Adamski type crafts, which have the balls under them. And they're very archaic looking with windows in them. And then in, in the sixties, they got windows in them. The windows disappear. The landing traces disappear. They, they were landing when I was doing the sightings. There, we had 10 trace cases where these things were on the ground. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore. And you start to see that the, the phenomena is sort of changing as it goes along, especially when you get these objects, when they change from one to another as you're watching, which I saw twice, where it started off as one object and it appeared as another object. So that's when I sort of, uh, I went I went from sightings to figuring out what does the government know? So I chased the yeah. Canadian government 
And then I was trying to find out where did Wilbur Smith get his material. That's when I that's when I learned about uh, Dr. Eric Walker. So we chased him around for eight years, and he knew what was going on. And he was talking in rhymes and riddles. And it would be the same thing like Kit Green. There's a story I don't know if you know the story where Kit Green, they Bill Moore, who was the big guy in the 1980s, who had all the material, and then uh, identified the fact he was working with Richard Doty and was sort of discounted, and nobody would ever believe anything he said it again. Uh, when he was, um, uh, I always gave him credit because I, ta- I was giving the Walker story around. And I said, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's, he's got, he's the chairman of the board of the Institute for Defense Analysis. He's got 14 honorary doctorate degrees. You know, he invented the homing torpedo. He's got a former president of Penn State University for 15 years. And he knows the UFO story. He knows what's going on. And nobody would believe me. Like Stanton Friedman phoned him twice, and he basically played around with Stanton Friedman and then hung up on him. And Stan says, well, you're going to leave him alone. If he's not going to talk, you know, and Stan wouldn't do it. But Bill Moore said, oh, I'm going to find out. I don't believe he's who you say. I don't believe he's as powerful as you say. But he sends Kit Green because he had the Avery, and I knew who the Avery was, and I knew that the BJ was Blue Jay. He was Kit Green. And Kit Green goes in. It's just, so that's what I'm doing. So Kit Green is trying to figure out what's going on as well. For example, I believe it was Eric Davis told me that Kit Green tried for years to get briefed on, he's, he's a physiologist, he wanted to get briefed on the alien autopsy, he wanted to get briefed on, on the autopsy, and he could never get briefed on all sorts of other UFO topics, fragments of the thing, but he could never get briefed in, read in on, on autopsies. So that's the whole thing. So Kit Green's trying to figure out what's going on. So he goes to, and Jacques Ballet tells the story. I, I heard at the time the rumor of what happened. He goes and he's got a clearance to go see Walker at Penn State University. And he's trying to figure out what's going on as well. So he says to Walker, I think this should be released. I think you should do it. Walker system. OK, you give me two reasons why I should release what's going on. And, and so Kit Green says he gives him two reasons. And he says, apparently, I didn't give him the right reasons because he basically what he did is he started yelling and screaming, pretending there was a, a, a microphone in the corner of the room there were, and talking to books and, and, and said, you're not the president. Uh, I don't have to tell you anything. If if you bring me a letter from the president, then I'll talk to you. And I'm going to check. I'm going to check with the president and make sure he actually signed the letter. And he throws Kit Green out of the office. So that's the whole thing. I'm trying to figure out what Kit Green's knowing. Kit Green's trying to figure out what Eric Walker's knowing. And that's the thing is you figure out who knows what's going on. So Kit Green's not, he, he may sort of talk of rhymes and riddles, but when Kit Green talks, yeah. and Dolan agrees with this to me as well, because I had a lot of discussion with Dolan when he was talking to Kit Green. When Kit Green says something, you can take it to the bank. Kit Green is a guy who's trying to figure it out, same as Eric Walker's trying to figure it out, same as Eric Davis is trying to figure it out. They say about Eric Davis. Eric Davis couldn't lie to save his life. And that's the thing is when you get him going in an interview and then he starts, you know, sort of gets gets excited and he's talking and he says things he shouldn't be saying. I remember he was with Eric, with, uh, he talked about the crash stuff with uh, George Knapp. And George Knapp said, oh, I know what the story is going to be tomorrow. And as soon as he said it, Matt realized that he shouldn't probably have said this. So that was the thing. It's I, I chased. So that then when Walker um, um, said he was going to leave his files, we were looking for his files from when he was at the Pentagon. That's when he claimed he was at a, sta- a series of briefings at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. And we assumed the date was 1950. That's when Walker was with the Research and Development Board, which is the, the, the defense a part that does all the weapon research and that's the most highly classified research and he was the executive director so he was the second top guy behind the director and he said he was at this briefings in 1950 and uh, we were looking for the notes his notes from the pentagon and he had said to the truman library that he was going to leave some his fi- some of the files there 
from the Truman days, which would be 1950. So I went to the Truman Library looking for the Walker files on what happened at the Pentagon in 1950, whether he was going to talk about this crash, because his son actually said he had a file with two crashes in his, his oldest son, who was a, a medical doctor. And so we went there, and that's when there was really nothing. There's a couple of letters from Walker that had nothing to do with UFOs or whatever. And, and it was at that point when I said, oh, the president's the most powerful guy in the world. He's got to know what's going on. And it was always this thing. Who knows what's going on? So that's when I said to the archivist at the Truman Library, I said, so what do you got on UFOs? And he said, well, we got a couple of telegrams, and we got all the letters in 1952 when they had the fl overflight of Washington. Truman had given a shoot-down order the first Saturday and after the first week, and then the second week, and they had had all these telegrams come into the White House saying, Mr. President, don't shoot him down. And that's where the story comes from Frank Edwards, who was the biggest broadcaster in the 1950s. He had 10 million listeners on the Mutual Radio Network, and he was a big UFO guy. And he said that Truman told him during the shutdown that Einstein had come to Truman, and he'd said, Mr. President, anybody who can cross millions of miles of space will know how to protect themselves once they get here. Mr. President, don't start something you can't finish. And according to Frank Edwards, he said, that's the first time a good give me hell Harry decided better not to give him any hell. So when the Truman Library didn't have any documents on UFOs, I said, well, that's kind of weird. And then the, the Eisenhower doc, the archives was just on the road. So I said, I'll go to the Eisenhower Library. And I went there. And then they only had five documents. One was the famous CIA document, the Robertson panel document was done under the Truman administration on the very last days, but it's in the it's in the Eisenhower. So I had that the 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 CIA memo from the Robertson panel and, and then three telegrams or something. And I go, what? That's all you got? I said, how many pages are in the uh, Eisenhower library? He said 28 million pages. And there was five there was like 15 pages of documents. And that's when I said something's wrong. And I started to go to all the presidential libraries to see what the presidents knew. So I gathered all the stories and it came to the determination there really is nothing in the archives except for the Carter Library. There's there's a fair bit. In the Clinton Library, there's 10,000 pages. The Obama Library, there's going to be 30,000 pages of UFO stuff. And other than that, there's really nothing. There's no, there's no big secrets except for the Reagan writing, the handwriting where he says, um, I'd like my fantasy put back in how the world would be united if we were threatened by aliens from another planet, something to that effect. And otherwise, there's nothing in the library. And it was then when I had the download. So it was then after there, I had all the presidential stuff. And that's when I was watching Colin Andrews in, in Phoenix in 2012, February 26th. He's talking about consciousness and crop circles. And that's when I put all these all these pieces were put together. The Walker piece, the, the Ben Rich piece, the, the Canadian government, they just put all these pieces in my head. And I went, oh, that's how it works. And I knew it had to do with consciousness. But I didn't realize it was non-local consciousness. That's when the light came on for me for consciousness. And that's when I gave up on the, on the president. I said, the president stuff's a waste of time. And I remember Jerry Pippen, who was a very famous interviewer at the time, said to me, and I knew him fairly well. He said, Grant, I can't believe you've done this. I can't believe you were the president guy. You were the guy that had the president stuff. You went from that to this woo-woo stuff. And I said, well, tell, let me tell you what, Jerry. I didn't really go there. I was kind of teleported there. I didn't, just like the UFO sighting, I didn't intend to have the download. I didn't intend this thing to come in my head and then walk around in the days for two days, actually, just unbelievably figuring out this is what this is about. This is what, what this whole thing, it came so clear, absolute certainty that this is what it was about. And that's when I made the shift to consciousness. And that's when they started to put, in 2013, I was doing a big for MUFON, which is one of the biggest groups there is, MUFON in Phoenix, Arizona. 
I was there, and that's when they said to me, oh, are you still going to talk to Pam Dupuis? And I said, yeah, I guess so. I didn't know. I, I must have agreed to talk to her. And that's when they put this Pam Dupuis, who was in her 70s, came to Stacy Wright's house. I was there, and she said, what does Stacy tell you about me? I said, she didn't say nothing. She just said I should talk to you. That's good. She's talking. I'm remote viewing, and I was abducted, and she's going on, and there's all these stories. You've heard all these stories before. And then she says to me, oh, and I was flying the craft last night. I went, you are what? She said, I was flying the craft last night. I said, they let you fly the UFO? And she said, yeah, they did. I've flown three different models. And I go, so how do you fly a UFO? She said, oh, you do it with your mind. And then I realized why they put me together. And I'm just about to come out with a book called The UFO Sky Pilots. I've got 36 witnesses, all who claim they've flown the craft. And they all say exactly the same thing. You go inside, you put your hand on a panel, you put your hand on a ball, you put your hand in these in the, on this chair, you sit in this chair that's molded to your body, and, and, and you become one with the craft. The craft is alive. The craft is conscious. You become one with the craft, and whatever you think is what the craft does. And that's when you get guys like Ron Johnson, when they said, where would you like to go? And he said, I'd like to see the Milky Way from a distance. And he said, in one second, he looked out the front window, and there was the Milky Way off in the distance. If that is true, where he can go 50,000 light years or whatever that is, in one second, we got something seriously wrong with our physics. There's something that we're missing here. And when you figure that out, you're going to figure out what this thing is. It's way more complex than people think it is. And, you know, when I'm sitting here listening to how excited you are, and I appreciate the fact that you are a brilliant mind in, in ufology, but you are also an experiencer. So you've experienced something that is driving you to get the answers, but yet, you know, it's so small in comparison to everything that you're, that you're pushing towards and guiding towards. You're still able to, to handle this. So do you think it's important criteria because I've interviewed quite a, a few people that I was surprised to find out they've never had an experience uh, and, and they're high up in this investigative type of thing. Do you think it's important for an experience, a researcher to have an experience? Uh, in, I would in, say in that the vast, my, my experience, the vast majority, Eric Davis is an experiencer. Yeah. Gary Nolan's an experiencer. Jim Summivan is an experiencer. Hal Poitras' son had a, a very direct big encounter with the Phoenix lights just after it happened. I believe Hal's had an experience. Uh, Jacques Vallée started with an experience. I, I'm in the field that everybody's basically had something that motivates them, that drives them, except for maybe Stanton. And I remember I used to ask uh, Steve Bassett, why do you get into this, Steve? And why did you dedicate your life and just dry, drop everything? And he said, it was just because it was interesting. I was like, you sure you had that experience? And it just made me making yeah. sense because you get a lot of people who've had experiences like, like me and they can go back and I'll say, uh, you know, what was it like? And they'll tell you exactly what day it was, exactly what the weather was like that happened yesterday. Or people will say, no, I haven't had an experience. I just had some dreams of beings. And then I'll say to them, anything else weird happened in your life? They go, oh, yeah. And they'll tell you ghost stories and all this stuff in their background and stuff. And you realize it's it's like the idea that everybody's a lifer and that everybody right. comes in. Or I'll say to people, I say, you're, you're driven by this thing. Do you think you're on a mission? And they'll either say, yeah, and they'll tell you what the mission is, or they'll say, I think so. I don't know what it is, but yeah, I think I'm on a mission. And, and that's the whole idea is, is if you get into the reincarnation thing, there's no, there's really nothing is chance. You're coming in, you've planned your life, you've, you've decided to see this. And that's what happened to me when I start looking at my first deciding. When I, when I interviewed the guys who shot this film, I'll, I'll give you the background on it. So these guys from CKY TV, 
they had gone in the night before and they'd almost got it on film. So the assistant news producer said, this is garbage. You guys want to chase UFOs? You can do it on your own time. I'm not paying any more overtime. Enough of this nonsense with flying saucers. It's 1975. And so the guys that went out were a volunteer crew. The guy that shot the camera had never shot a camera before in his life. These big TV cameras in the 1970s. So he's a film editor. They took him out there. So he's at the end of the road. And this thing is on the ground down the road. And, and it, we, we actually measured it's eight and a quarter miles down the road. So it's, 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 it's glowing up and it's going back down. It's glowing up. It's going back. And there's two cars. And they got a bunch of pilots from uh, pilots and newspaper reporters and stuff. And, and guys from CKY, they go in two different roads. And if you know, they have the mile roads. They have a mile road, a mile road, a mile road. So one goes on the north mile road and the south mile road. And they try to go and they try to cross over. And the one car comes across as, as it, with the way they think it is. And it's right there. It's behind this set of bushes. And they said it was like a, like a drive-in movie screen up in the air, blood red, behind this set of bushes. But it wasn't touching the ground. And they looked around to get their bearings as to where they were so they could find it the next morning, whatever. And then to look back and the thing was gone. Meanwhile, this guy's at the end of the road. And I interviewed this guy. And when I heard this, I realized this was not chance that I happened to be out there. Because that's why if they had not shot this film, I never would have gone. It started in February of 1975. I didn't go. We were going to go. I said, ah, we drive around the city. Let's go and see what they're looking at. And they said, yeah, okay, we'll do that. We never went. We never would have gone if it hadn't been for CKY getting this film because it went viral in Winnipeg. It was like they were talk everybody's talking about it. And what happened was the guy sees this thing. He's looking in the viewfinder and he sees it glowing up and he's glowing back down. And he realized they hadn't got anything the night before. He said, okay, the next time this thing glows up, I'm going to shoot the camera. And it was almost like the UFO said, you ready? Get ready. And as he pushed the trigger, the thing jumped into the air. It jumped these three, three frames of film, 5,000 feet in the air. Boom, like that. And went across the sky and he captured this thing. That's why I went out. When I heard that he had shot the camera just as this thing jumped, I said, this is a chance. That's what they needed me out because I wasn't going to go. I wouldn't have gone. I, right. they, it was like they forced me to go out. So I, uh, that's why I always ask experiences. Have you ever had any other experiences? Have you ever had, uh, you know, do you think you have a mission? Do you think you're, you're driven by this thing? Because you'll see most people are absolutely driven. Like they can't, the people, we used to make a joke. People would leave the field as that's it. This guy left. He's quitting. He's had it. He's whatever. And then I say, don't worry. You'll be back. Nobody leaves. Everybody always comes back. It's like you can't let it go. It's like it's the same as a as a near death experience. If you have near death experiences, which is connected, you take near death experiences. The divorce rate is seventy five to eighty percent of people who have a near death experience will get divorced. It's like your life totally changes. It it totally makes you into a different person. It's like my first my first wife said near the end. She said. I think this is demonic. And I remember thinking in my head, this isn't good. Like, where are we going to go with this? Like, how do you, how do you go get past that? I mean, and, and the, the second affair, I, uh, second uh, uh, woman I had, it was the same thing. She, she tolerated, but she wasn't interested. And that's what you see is this thing where when, 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 when you're driven, you drive people nuts because you, you just, that's all you talk about. Uh, Ray Hernandez, he almost got divorced. You hear these stories over and over again. You know, the people that just get obsessed with, with what they've seen and stuff like that, and they never forget it. And that is almost like the idea that you planned it before you were born. And so when it happens, it's like realizing the aha. Oh, I, and it's like you recognize it. You think it's really, it dri drives you, but it's like a cue. Almost like you you plan to have this happen, and when it happens, you get totally excited, and you're on that mission. Almost like Bashar says, you live life to your highest expectation. And people who are doing UFO research are doing that. 
It's very exciting. It's like there's no money. And you remember we were talking before the show about why do people fight? The reason people fight in ufology is because there's no money in ufology. The only thing you have is your ideas. So people are, that's their money. That's their, and you're going to protect your ideas. So people fight about ideas because there is no money. If you were making, I worked at a university where, you know, you've got professors who are making $225,000 a year. They work seven months a year. They don't teach any courses. Their, their papers are marked by, by master's students and stuff like that. I mean, if you're getting $135,000 a year and some guy you're in physics and some guys get a different idea, who cares? I'm getting paid. But when all you've got is your idea, then people fight. That's why I believe people fight in ufology because it's all ego. It's all about and you get a lot of big egos. And I don't I don't go after these people. Like you get I wrote the whole book called Managing Magic, where I talked about the five messiahs, Stephen Greer, Tom DeLonge, Bill Moore. They're all the same thing. There were these guys when they went to Bill Moore, they said, oh, you're the only guy who knows what you're talking about. And Bill, yeah, like, oh, that's right. And that's how they sucked him in. That's how the government got got him in there was to tell him twice. You're the only guy who knows what you're talking about. And it's the ego thing. And all these people believe, but you need that. Because if you don't have the ego, when the first thing goes wrong, you're going to walk away. So guys like Greer, guys like Moore, guys like DeLong aren't going to walk away. They've got this defiance. They're going to keep moving. So we need these guys. I, I appreciate the fact yeah. of what these guys do. And it's the same deal. I don't really care what what you know what their background is or what they do in their spare time, whatever. I listen very carefully to what Stephen Greer says. listen very carefully to what Tom DeLong says. I listened very carefully in the 1980s to what Bill Moore said and they all had things they were doing the same thing as you and i they were just trying to figure this thing out and mm -hmm. they may have had a, they may have you know maybe total idiots to work with but in terms of trying to figure it out i believe everybody's trying to do the same thing they're trying to get to the end and they're trying to figure this thing out yeah and i mean i appreciate that a lot because like i i am not going to pretend that i know i'm an expert as an engineer or scientist or any any of this higher level academic stuff my experience and what I excel at is studying people. I understand how people react to certain things and how, what people clicks they make and the patterns that people follow and all this information around that, that I can kind of, I can see all these things. I see how these, these clicks don't work with each other, but then I hear their ideas and their ideas are similar, but yet they're not working together. And then as a, as an individual who's trying to like, I guess prep a, a new generation because a lot of people think that ufology is dead. I mean, like this, this is this is a lot of things that work that you have done. Grant, uh, Grant, Cam uh, sorry, not your Grant Cameron, sorry, Friedman, uh, Hellier, they've passed. You know, and these are all these are all individuals that are have these same struggles. Uh, Rutowski is another one who's going to pass eventually. You know, and all these other things. What happens for the future? And in my mind, I'm thinking, uh, you know. I need to, I need to learn from these people. I need to get information from these people, but I get these challenges. I have an alternative idea, but it just strays from their idea makes them mad because it interferes with their, with their money and all these other things. So I'm asking you, putting you on the spot for, by thinking for the next generation, people like myself, that's trying to catch the ball, if you will, how do we trust? Who do we follow? Or how do we, how do we prepare for this? Because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to catch up. I'm trying to understand, but I don't trust anybody. And that's a problem. Well, you, you've got you got to work it for yourself. What the problem that we have is that it's the Messiah complex that people want mm -hmm. someone who's going to do the work for them. It's the same as the government. 
we want the government to either get rid of the carbon tax and give me cheap gas or keep the carbon tax so I get a carbon tax credit money every year and save the environment or whatever. So people have these these various ideas. And I, I give everybody their ideas, uh, but we, we get into these messiah things where we think, oh, Mufon's going to solve it, or Bill Moore's going to solve it, or Tom DeLong's going to solve it. And everybody jumps online, uh, you know, like, you know, jumping on Trump's train or something like that, where he gets in, in behind somebody and they believe this guy's the Messiah. And then it's like, you know, in the end, it's so if something happens, it falls apart. And they go, I, I knew he wasn't the Messiah. And then they start yeah. looking for a new Messiah. And what That's you're trying, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get somebody to follow. Somebody to, and what you have to do. So I've never been a follower. I just, yeah. my basic premise is, I watch these guys and I put out material. So I really don't keep anything secret. I mean, I, I, I basically, if someone says, I'm going to tell you something secret, I say, you tell me, I'm telling everybody. And that's why I was cut off by the Avery. The Avery won't talk to me because I started to release stuff with who they were talking to and what was yeah. going on. And it was like, you can't keep your mouth. And it was the idea, like the Bible says, what profit of the man begins the whole world and loses his own soul? What good does it do if you figure it out and I figure it out? So what I do is I, I gather a lot of material. So I gathered the Stanton Friedman files, I've given them access. Anybody can see the Stanton Friedman files. I've given them a click of the mouse, 6,000 pages of the Stanton Friedman files. I got all the stuff from the Clinton library, the Click Carter library. I'm trying to get all this stuff. I just put it out and I put out my material. I've, 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 I've got many leaked documents that I got. The, the Douglas documents with the Douglas aircraft, all those documents were mine. They're on a website in, in, in England. Uh, the Wilson leak document, the alien autopsy document, although everybody sort of fought with that one. Um, I've, uh, I've got the, the, the Oak Shannon, when I'm allowed to release it, I'll release 28 pages of, of notes from the famous 85 meeting that John Alexander had. And there again, John Alexander, people say, oh, John's this, John's that, or whatever. John's just trying to figure it out the same as everybody else. So John had this meeting in 1985 and he gathered together all these people and they all had top secret SCI clearances. And he was trying to get funding from the government, the same as what, what, what Semivan did. They went into the government and they tried to get money. And so Oak Shannon was at this meeting. So I've got Oak Shannon's notes from this meeting, 28 pages of they talked about cattle mutilations. They talked about crash retrievals. They talked about this, all this kind of stuff. And I've got all these notes. So I just put this stuff out. And that's what I do because I'm like a collector and I'm like a chess player. I, I intend mm -hmm. to win. I intend to figure this thing out. I intend to go where the, where the, so I, I will basically say if, if Kit Green talks, you listen. If Eric Davis talks, you listen. Hell put off talks, you listen. If Jacques Vallée talks, you listen. If George Knapp talks, you listen. If Brandon Fugel talks, you listen. And I'll listen to all these guys and I put all the stuff together and I have a lot of taped interviews and I, I take little quotes out of it. And I, 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 I put all that stuff together and I just try to leave as much material try to gather as much material like the Obama. I'll, by the time the Obama thing's done, we'll have 30,000 pages of material uh, dealing with Podesta, for example. Podesta, I say, was behind this thing. Hillary Clinton, Podesta, and um, Hillary Clinton, Podesta, and, and Jimmy Semivan were behind this present disclosure. Nothing would have happened if those people hadn't made the move in 2016. So, I, I, of course, I ask when I go to the Obama file, I ask for all the files on... Uh, uh, John Podesta, there's seven on UFOs and all this kind of stuff. They have 7,000 pages that apply. Now, a lot of that stuff's not going to be UFO stuff or whatever. They're looking at 7,000 pages. Area 51, a couple thousand pages. Uh, Chris Bledsoe, the famous story that Chris Bledsoe had a briefing done of Obama about Chris Bledsoe. So I went, and I, of course, I'm going to ask for Chris Bledsoe's files. 35 pages of material. 
Tim Taylor, the famous guy from, from American Cosmic, 350,000 and a thousand pages of digital material. So some of, we're going to get some material out of there. And that's what I do. I'm just a collector. I'll grab the material. The, the, the Clinton stuff I haven't even read. I got 10,000 pages of Clinton files and, and we're going to get them put up online. I haven't even read them yet. I, I just, once I get it, it's like a, it's like a collection. It's like, I got it. I got all the Clinton stuff. I got all the files. Mm -hmm. The only one that I really wanted that I didn't get was, was the famous one from John Podesta's 50th birthday. I asked for the 83 uh, photographs and the video of John Podesta's 50th birthday because it was an X-Files birthday party and Bill and Hillary dressed up like the X-Files. And that's okay. why they wouldn't release it. They they fought me for years on these on these photographs from this thing. That's the kind of stuff to me. And when I get it, it's like, yeah, I got it. You know, it's like a like I won the chess game. I, I get just thrilled when I when either I get a download and I figure something out or I get a file that I haven't gotten before or something like that. That that's what gives me the thrill. That's what gives me the excitement. So with all that information, um, some that you've released, some you haven't released, like in, in playing chess, you know, where, where, uh, what does the chess board look like right now? What, what, like, what is, what is going on? I, I think it's over. I, I, I basically say it's over. I mean, it's, it's a matter of time. Uh, I, I remember telling the story. What, what is over specifically? Disclosure. It's all over. It's all, it's all going to unravel. Uh, okay. I I when Chris uh, when I used to disagree with Bassett all the time about disclosure, we were going to do a book and he wanted to put in that first hundred days of the Obama administration is going to be disclosure. That, that broke the book down. I said no, I can't, I can't, I'm not going to be a book that says that. I, I in fact I said in one of his conferences I said it'd be 2042 before there's disclosure. You got to remember I've been in since 1975. I never ever believed this would ever happen. I could not believe when in the New York Times did that article. And suddenly they said, yeah, yeah, we got UFOs. And that's what this acclimatization that I talk about in some of my books was about. The guy, they, they've been dropping this stuff for years. They've been dropping the basic story, but covering it with disinformation. And that's how they get the story out. So you tell the Area 51 story, but then you give it to Bob Lazar, who's uh, a total guy that nobody's going to believe. The story gets out, nobody believes it because it's intended for John Lear. And John Lear did carry the story for six months and nobody listened to him until George Knapp picked up the story. Then it picked it up. So what I say is happening now is you've got the disclosure and everybody, and I say, all you're going to need now, I'm going to try to do this in Canada. I have a meeting tomorrow at 12 noon with a, with a guy who's got big credentials inside the conservative party. We're going to try to get McGuire and the other conservative guy. We're going to try to get somebody from the NDP party. We're going to try to get someone from the liberal party. And we're going to bring in Lou Elizondo. We're going to bring in Jim Semivan and we're going to bring in, I want to bring in Robert Hastings as a panel like a, like a city, like our own hearing. And these guys can ask questions. I'm going to try to set this up tomorrow. That's what you need in the, all you need in the United States is one thing. I say, when I saw the Wilson leak document, you probably heard when I first talked about it before it was leaked, I was talking about it for months before, because I had it. I said, when this document leaks, it's over, it's game over. All you need is a congressional hearing where hell put off is there. Uh, Lou Elizondo is there. Eric Davis is there. And they are given immunity. I'm hearing that they're working on an immunity where they're going to be given immunity. If Eric Davis is up there, I, I talked to Eric Davis in 2002 when he leaked this document. Remember the Wilson leaked document was in there. That was 2002. This is 20 years later. You can imagine what Eric Davis knows now. If they put Eric Davis in there and give him immunity and give Lou Elizondo immunity, it's game over. All they got to do is say, yeah, we got crashed sausages. We got crashed body. We got bodies. And it's all going to just, it's, it's unraveling right now. I don't think they can stop it. They, they can slow it down, but I don't think they can stop it. 
Yeah, there's too many people talking about the crashes. There's too many congressional. There was a there was a congressman. There was a senator who went to Chris Bledsoe's house to see UFOs just recently. That's the thing. It's it's taken off. It's not the way it was before. And 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 you and it, when the New York Times article, everybody, went, yeah, I know that already. Yeah, everybody was acclimatized. Nobody cared. Nobody jumped off a building. Nobody committed suicide. The oil prices didn't melt down. And everybody just said, okay, now tell me about the bodies. Tell me about the crashes. And that's coming next. I, I firmly believe it's, they're not going to stop it. The, it's going to come out. Somebody's going to get immunity. Somebody's going to talk about it. And the New York Times is going to pick on it. And it's over. I, I believe it's all going to unravel. So with the, the U.S. Congress there, um, did they not debunk or, or classify the those videos as drones. That was the military that did. That was the military. It wasn't it wasn't Congress. Congress got the classified briefing. Okay, sure. The classified okay, briefing, and the classified briefing would have included that video I talked about, the one where the UFOs were right. This famous twenty-three minute or forty-three minute video that has all these things ten feet away and stuff like that. It, that's the kind of stuff that Congress has seen. So they know that the, that it's the old deal. It's like it's a different branch of government. So they know that the, the Pentagon is playing games. That's the same yeah. as Bill Clinton said when he tried. He said, "I tried to find it, but you know, it's a you know, they they, they I'm not the first bureaucrat that they've tried to withheld withhold the information from. So it's a fight where, where Obama tried to get it, and they had to, they had to go deep within the bowels of the Pentagon to get the material." They can't withhold it from the president, but they can try to hide it from the president. And that's what they're doing. And that's what Congress is, is going to do is they're just going to cut off their money. They're going to cut off the money from yeah. and put pressure on. That's just a matter of time. And it comes down to this immunity thing. If, if, if Eric Davis is there and Hell Put Off is there and, and Joel Zondo's there and they have immunity to talk, get ready. Because they're not going to be talking about lights in the sky. I guarantee you. Everybody's going yeah. to want to know about the bodies. And I've heard the background stories. I've talked to Eric Davis back. I knew what they knew back in 2002, and they know an awful lot. They don't know how it works. They like for, at, the, at the end of the Wilson document, it says, we have a craft we think it will fly. They have a craft that's completely intact, and they cannot turn it on because it needs a consciousness interface. They can't turn the thing on. So this is the thing. They don't understand the consciousness thing. They don't understand how they're coming back through time and space. But, yes, they got bodies. they got crafts. they got all this kind of stuff. And that's enough to blow this thing wide open. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to force the story. That's what Semi Van was trying to do. He's trying to force the story into the white world because in the black world, it's so compartmentalized, they can't figure this thing out. If you put it in the white world, they're going to get all the scientists working on it and we can start to figure this thing out. That's why they've made this disclosure move is to get it into the white world where people can work on it. Are they going to do more than just say it, though? Will they have proof? Will they have pictures will they have videos will they have samples because like i mean it's no different than you us talking about it is hearsay evidence and yes they're most significant people in 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 these circles but to other circles they're they're not important people uh you know like they're going to need more than just that especially if the government's plan is to just squash it so if the government knows it's coming out why not get ahead of it to take control of it because if successful then we assume control and then that becomes a problem for the rest of the world. So I'm just trying to think, you know, of the strategy here. It just seems if that does happen and they get immunity and they say things, I'm going to need more than just a conversation from these individuals as respected and credible as they are. I'm going to want to see it. And then well, I, I mean, think, okay, but Lou Alexander is going to know where it is. Eric Davis knows where the material is. He even said at one point, he was talking about Lazar being a fraud he said the, the crash material is not even at, at Area 51. 
So when he makes a drop like that, then you know he he knows basically. I heard the story about the general putting his hand on a craft and it was alive. I've heard these stories back from these these different people and stuff like that. And and so Congress gets it. That's what happened. You take a look at Danny Sheehan. Danny Sheehan is the lawyer for Lou Alzando. So he goes into the Pentagon and he names everybody. He says, you need to investigate. And here's the people. And he forces the Pentagon to investigate. So Congress will call these people. They've named right. this guy. This guy's in charge. This guy's in charge. There was even the story that Hal Putoff was, was asked if he could t- name the 12 guys running it. He said, yeah, I could probably t- name the 12 guys running it. They all know who's running it. They all know the top people. And But what, what the, the problem with, with, with these guys is nobody wants to release it because the idea is if you release what you've got, then nobody's going to talk to you again because it's all they're all trying to figure out what the guy above them. I mean, it's all the secret and secret. That's why they wouldn't talk to me because I started to talk about what they knew and who they were talking to and stuff like that. But Congress can call. And if you go in front of Congress and they've got you, you lie in front of Congress, you go to jail for five years. So it's a different story if you get called in front of Congress. Congress is just behind the ball right now. They've just had the start of the briefings. They're being brought up to speed. And that's what we want to do with the Canadians is like like McGuire says, okay, he wants to have a hearing. Well, he can stand up on the House of, floor, the House of, the floor of, Com- House of Commons. He knows how it works. You stand up on the House of the Floor of Commons and you ask for a, you ask for a, a, a panel. And you and you you officially military that you bring in witnesses you can bring bring in Lou Elizondo and people like that and he hasn't done it he says we'd like to do it so that's why I'm going to try to force him into this thing where he does it off the record where it's you know it's just him talking as a as a private citizen but but when when Congress gets a hold of something they can talk they they know who all the players are and it's a matter of them uh, not calling in the the guys. Because that's what the Pentagon did, is they put a bunch of guys out to, to Congress who didn't know what was going on. So they could literally say, I don't know what's going on. I believe there were drones or whatever like that. Because they don't know. They're not read in. There's only a certain people are read in. But Eric Davis and Hell Put Off and people like this are going to know who's read in. They're going to know who the people are. And those are the people that they can tell Congress, this guy knows, this guy knows, this is where the bodies are, this is where the crafts are, this is how it works. And, and then it all just takes off. So it's just a matter of time. I mean, it, you've got to remember, this happened in in five years there was went from nothing to where we are right now in five years this thing's moving along pretty fast compared to my first 40 years where absolutely nothing happened it was i never believed it would ever come to that we would never ever see the day when the government would say yeah we're working on ufos now we're past that to uh lou alizondo going on fox news and saying i believe we've got crash material and that's why he said i believe we got crash material in front of congress he's gonna say you're under oath and you've got immunity. I know we've got crash material. It's here. I was in this facility. And that's what happens where, where you get it. But it's just a matter of time. It may be a year, maybe two years before they can have this kind of hearing. It is going to happen. Yeah. And I, I, under, I understand that at that level, too. Because, yeah, if you take it on the oath, then you don't need to have, you know, all those documented evidence and things like that, too. Because then they would follow up and investigate and find it to prove that's true. And then it comes out. So, so if you know what's going to happen and, and they know what's going to happen and it's being set up, is, is the ones, is there any efforts into preventing it? Well, the guys that, that control it control the money. And if they're, you know, yeah. there's these rumors of trillions of dollars with the money. Yeah. Um, they, for example, we, we asked Eric, Dr. Eric Walker, you're an old man. Why don't you release what's going on? And he said, why should we change the rules to satisfy your curiosity? And he was right. In vast majority, it's just curiosity. 
Who cares what Ryan wants to know? This is national security. We're going to build weapons out of this thing. We're going to, you know, the, the Russians, the Chinese. It's this national insecurity that, you know, with the national insecurity budget of $800 billion, we we, we got to protect this. The most highly classified secrets are weapon secrets. And it comes down to lead time in weapons. So if you got an atomic bomb and you drop it a day before they learn how to work the atomic bomb, you win the war because you can't. You, you can go to the, the Japanese empire and, uh, emperor and say, oh, they dropped an atomic bomb on us. Uh, what are we going to do? And, and then the emperor says, well, build an atomic bomb. And they say, we can't. It takes eight years. It's this lead time is to be ahead of your 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 adversary to have that material. And they're going to say this is national security. And most people are going to agree with them. That kind of stuff is national security. If we give it to the Russians, uh, then you got Putin having his stuff. So that, that's where, where the, 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 the thing comes down. But the body thing is still going to come. You're going to get the bodies, the crafts, the technology. You're probably, it's all going to be, under national security that we can't tell you how it works. And it's true. Curiosity, as, as Bush said to Carter, curiosity is not sufficient need to know. We, we really don't care that people are curious and want to know. But we get confirmation that it exists. Yeah, you're going to get confirmation on the bodies and the crafts. I'm pretty sure within the next year or two. I mean, it may even happen faster. I can't believe it happened as fast as it did. I mean, and I was just... In the origin of these bodies, interdi interdimensional or extraterrestrial? Well, that's where I've, I've sort of moved away. I, I, I don't think this is going to be extraterrestrial the way people think it is. I, I always refer to the story of the hand. If you take a look at the, Leslie Kane telling the story about the hand. She's at a physical seance. This stuff's all connected. So the hand appears. She touches it. It's a, it's a male hand. It's soft. She can feel the knuckles. She can feel the tendon. She can feel everything. And then it dematerializes in front of her. She said she saw that on a number of occasions. That's what it is. You come into the physical world. You wrote, raise your vi lower vibration. You go back into the world where you came from. Now, if you happen to crash when you're here, then you stay in the physical world. But I think they're dropping. I think majority of the stuff, if, even if you look at uh, Diane Pasolka talks about when they went to the, they call it the gifting field, the crash site that was gifted. I believe that's true. Uh, uh, Bob Bigelow talked about that. I think they were seeding them, that they were wanting China to Russia, that they were actually dropping this material to seed it, that the, in the, the like the, the metals. I always disagree with people on metals. They say, oh, we're going to get this metal and we're going to figure out how the craft flies. They're dropping it. It's a port. It's a port material. They're dropping this stuff. They're playing a game. It's dropped this stuff. And you take a look at it and you say, oh, this stuff is made on Earth, but you can't figure it out. It's the same as the UFO saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably extraterrestrial, but we can't figure it out. So they're, they're forcing us, instead of going in and saying, we're here to bring you freedom, democracy, Jesus, and McDonald's. They're coming in and they're dropping these little things and they're forcing you and I to figure it out for ourselves. They can't do your, you can't do our homework for us. So that's what they're doing with the metals. That's what they're doing with the crafts. They're sort of leading us on. And I think and it's all set up mature by the, the beings. I don't think the beings, the beings are in a higher dimension. They aren't coming from another planet. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. So no, and I'm tracking that too. And I'm just trying to understand, like I play the chess game as well, trying to figure out, you know, like, this, was this something that happened many, many years ago? And we're now learning about that, the, like the secrets of then. And, and if it's, if that's revealed, has that still happened? Is it happening now? Because like these bodies that you mentioned, like it could be are you referring to, you know, uh, the Roswell bodies, are you referring to the alien autopsy bodies, the, the, uh, even that, uh, that crashed, uh, on the border of Canada and U.S., those are the bodies that I'm aware of. Um, 
you know, okay, did uh, it, like, is okay. it still happening now? Are we going to learn that it happened and they got it taken care of and all these years we evolved and we learned all this information and they're gone? Or are we going to learn that it happened and it's happening and this is what we're going to do? <laughs> yeah, well, the, 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 the sightings, the, the beings are still doing their thing, but they're doing it differently now. It's like orbs. There's no windows and crafts anymore. There's, there's none of that kind of stuff. It's, it's sort of uh, shifted. Yeah. The, the bodies, I'm not sure about the crashes. I mean, I'm, I'm about to interview John Carpenter, who's a big uh, abduction researcher back in the 1990s. May have done more regressions than Hopkins or Jacobs. And um, he talks about the crafts being mentally flown, stuff like that, people telling him in the 1990s. But uh, he he um, also talks about this, this idea that um, uh, he was good friends with Len Stringfield. Now, most people don't even know who Len Stringfield is anymore. Because he died in 1994. Len Stringfield, I remember having talks with him. He had 650 independent witnesses of 30 crashes and 30 bodies. 650 independent witnesses. And I remember talking to him about these, about the various cases that he had and stuff like that. That's an incredible amount of material to, to, to show uh, that, that there's been these things. Now, whether there's crashes in the last couple of years, I'm not sure uh, whether, they're, whether that's still happening or not. But... Uh, Definitely, the 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 main crashes like like Roswell, the one at uh, Virginia, uh, some of these ones you're gonna you're gonna get, and you're gonna start learning that that like Walker said, uh, most of what you think is 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 wrong, and he started laughing. Uh, you're guessing, and most of what you you think is wrong, and he said, "How do you know they didn't get up and walk away?" And that was before we knew there was there may have been a live body at Roswell. This idea that the the alien walked got away. So live live aliens, that kind of stuff, and uh, but it's going to be this inter this idea that they're interdimensional. They're popping in, they're popping out. Almost like Jim Semivan said, and Jim Semivan's experiencer had them in his room, and he got the he got the big briefing. He got the main briefing that was given when he left the CIA, and he's the one that says there does not appear to be any there there. This appears to be consciousness. At an, an interdimensional or consciousness at another level. And when you hear a guy like that say that, and I would say, and whatever he says, take it to the bank. Jim Simon Van is telling me the truth. And when you hear him say that, you realize they're missing some pieces. So, yeah, they got bodies, they got crafts. In terms of how they get here, what's going on, that part, I don't think they've really solved, except the, beyond the fact that they know consciousness is involved. And they know consciousness is involved because the first alien, if there was a live alien at Roswell, it was talking in people's heads. And they realized this telepathy thing was going on. And they couldn't find an engine in the, in the craft. And they realized that they were using mental phenomena to use it for propulsion. And that's been confirmed. As I said, I've got three dozen witnesses coming out in a book. And one is a 747 United Airlines pilot. One is CIA. This Ramirez guy from CIA talks about flying the flying, uh, not the craft. He says he didn't use a craft. And the other one is a retired U.S. Air Force colonel out of out of uh, Los Angeles. So I've got some pretty high level witnesses. They're talking about flying the craft. And basically, you can take a cue card and say, "Okay, what happens next?" <laughs> you go from credit thing on the. They tell everybody tells exactly, and they all even they all say the same thing. They'll say. I think it was a dream. I say, everybody thinks it's a dream. Just tell me how you fly a craft and they'll all tell you the same story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've studied that too with the medium. There's different types of mediums, different ways of connecting, but the story, as long as how you got there doesn't matter. It's the fact that you got there and then and, and then all these things are, are similar. So, wow. My, okay, let me, let me try to frame this here. So this, my understanding 
if I understand it correctly, is that it's happening, it's coexisting. Um, the, the government is aware that it happened. We've been studying it and learning, covering it up. Other people are aware of that, trying to expose it and say that's been happening. Um, yet these species are still interfering with us, interacting with us separately. But I'm not seeing any or I'm not hearing any co- uh, collaboration. So, so, so is it, is it us trying to understand the, 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 uh, you know, the species, the entities and the entities doing their own thing and we can't control that. And the government is trying to learn that and prevent it and not tell us that, you know, or, you know, are they working together? Are we going to learn that? There may be, have been some contacts. I was talking about the Eisenhower story, the 54 story. But I tell it differently. See, people say that the the Greys made a, a treaty for technology in exchange yeah. for abductions. I say that's the stupidest thing in the world. Number one, the Greys can do whatever the heck they want. They don't need yeah. to make a treaty. And if the Greys break the treaty, what are you going to do? Take them to court? I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gonna, if it was, if there was a meeting, the meeting took place, and they said stop the nuclear weapons because a week after that meeting was the biggest nuclear contamination accident that ever occurred in the in the world it was a nuclear test the first been the, the first test of the uh, in the uh, marshall islands where they thought it was five megatons and they misread misread one of the ingredients they thought it was neutral it wasn't neutral and it was 15 megatons and they it, they contaminated an entire island they paid over a billion dollars in reparations they all the only people on this Japanese fishing trawler ended up dead from radiation. They were evacuating people that were at the site where they detonated it. It was just the absolute total mess. And I would say if that's what the, if there was a meeting, they were telling them to stop the nuclear weapons. They knew what was about to happen. They hate nuclear weapons. And I don't really agree that they're interfering. I think they're here. They're here. And if you have the reincarnation idea, uh, then we are working with them. We've made an agreement with them. Uh, Nothing really happens by accident. They even John Alexander, people have talked about they are us, we are them. That uh, we've agreed. It's like uh, if you've read uh, Dolores Cannon, the three waves. There's three waves of people who've come into the earth to change consciousness. That we are at a point in the history of the world where we can destroy ourselves. And the, the, these people have volunteered to come in. And uh, the aliens are playing their part. We're playing our part, and we're trying to raise consciousness to get people to understand uh, this post-materialist world where uh, we've got to realize that we are eating up the resources and that we don't need more technology because all we're going to do with the technology is strip the leaves off the trees twice as fast as we're doing it right now. We, that's the last thing we need is some real high-end technology. They're here not to do that, but they're here to, to try to uh, avert uh, nuclear disaster and the, what most experiences get this idea about the environmental devastation that we're, we're causing. So I would say that there's this agreement that the, the beings are in here, uh, uh, you know, trying to shift things around. So I, I see that a bit different. And yeah, they're still interacting. I mean, I even had uh, uh, I had um, two encounters. While well, the one in Shasta, I want to talk about. I had the one with the the beings that are in, interacting with two women who are inter- both interacting with these beings called the beings. And they said they wanted a, a meeting with me. So I went in there and I, I was talking to these beings and they call themselves Chon, uh, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. They don't have any faces. They don't have anything. And that's the whole thing. So the whole idea, we aren't aliens. And I said to them, I said, are you actually extraterrestrials? And they said, oh, 
if you want us to be extraterrestrials, we can be extraterrestrials if you want. But no, we've always been here. You're the visitor. And you start to hear that more and more. We've always been here. And that's what I talk about in this thing about UFOs and, and reality. If time and space are human illusions, how big is the universe? It could be the size of a, of a dot. Just a dot. Everything's happening inside of us. That's what John Wheeler, the famous physicist, said. There's no out there, out there. And that, if that's true, the idea that you're having an out-of-body experience, you're going within yourself. Or, or the, the statement that Stephen Greer always uses when he does his meditation, the, 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 um, um, this expression, you see yourself as a puny form when within you the universe is enfolded. That, I believe, is what's actually going to be the end result. That's how far away from reality we are, that the whole thing is everything is inside ourselves. There's no out there, out there. And that's the idea of remote viewing. Where does a remote viewer go when, when, he, when he's remote viewing? He's going within himself. Everything is in us. The whole universe is in us. All the information is in there. So when you have a download experience, it's coming from inside. You're going inside yourself. And that's when you have when you have the aha moment. When you have when I've had two major download experiences. The main thing I tell people that's that hard to explain is it comes with absolute certainty. It's like this is how it works. And the, the reason I believe that is, is because all the information is there. And you go in there and you you've seen it before and you see it and you recognize it. You go. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And that comes with absolute certainty. You're seeing it. Yeah. And that's what you'll see with, with, with download experiences where people will, will say it just popped into their head. It was there. They were working on it. And that's why I did the book Inspired. I look at all these Nobel Prizes and major inventions and stuff. And people think it's coming from out there. And, and this idea that everything is, is within us. All the inventions are there. Like if there's no time and space then there's no future. All the inventions of the future are there and you can go in there. You just have, it's a contact modality. It's learning how to get into the field. And that's where experiencers have been taught how to get in the field. They, they're going into this other reality. And they're coming back again. The beings are in that other reality or Bashar says, we come to you in your dreams because now you're in our world. And that's this whole idea that it's all the dreams, all these, the, the psychedelic stuff, even the, the DMT, if, if DMT, these experiences, I have the guy who dropped the Wilson leak document for me. Uh, um, uh, now I've forgotten his name, but anyway, um, he, he was a, he's an AI expert. And he told me that one day he said he had this DMT experience. He's working on a DMT. I did a whole book on, on psychedelics on, on, uh, I did, um, 15 high dose, uh, sessions with, uh, with, uh, um, psilocybin, but he was using, he was experimenting with the DMT and he said, Grant, I had, I had an abduction experience last night. I said, you did? And so he's doing DMT, and he said it was a classic abduction experience. I said, well, tell me about it. He said, I'm on a table, and they're working on my head. He said, I could see their arms. I couldn't see the, the, head, the heads of these beings, but they were working on me. And people don't realize that with the DMT experiments that Strassman did, half of them saw beings. And so Strassman actually quit. He quit the research because he was so blown away by this. He was asking these people, have you ever been abducted? And they go, no, I don't think so. And 25% of them had the, the abduction experience. And this is the whole deal. And then he would say the thing like it lasted like three months. Same as Chris Bledsoe. Chris Bledsoe's famous experience, he was gone for four hours. He said it was four months. When he was in the experience, it lasted four months. And he came back, it was four hours. And you see this P D DMT where people say, I was gone for a thousand years. Or the one guy, 2,500 years he was gone. And you start looking at that and you realize like time and space we have no clue. 
that these beings can move in through time and space. They can alter time and space. It's all one thing. It's like a deck of cards all on top of each other. There's no time. There's no space. And they know how to manipulate that environment. And we think there's time and space and it's a, it's an arrow and you have these wormholes. And you're going through these wormholes and it's all physical and stuff like that. And that's where I say, and what I say, what Gary Nolan says, you got to look at the anomalies and you got to realize we've got something really wrong, especially my friend, Ron Johnson. If he went 50,000 light years in one second, we got something wrong with the way we see physics because there was, or, or you even see the thing where, where people are doing the out-of-body experience. I had the one guy, he runs MUFON uh, Japan. He does the out-of-body experience. He's did what, 22 sessions or whatever. And he, he goes on the gray ship all the time and, and goes to different parts of the universe. People will describe this, that when you're in the out-of-body state, you can actually say, I want to be at Saturn and you're instantly at Saturn. Or if you're doing remote viewing, they just give you a target and your mind goes inside yourself and knows what the target is. And it's instantaneously at the target. Or if you're having near-death experience and you think of your brother, you're instantly at your brother's house. It's this idea that it's instantaneous. Things are moving around. There is no time. There's no space. We're making all these false assumptions. And it's like 1492. We've got the flat earth wrong. We've got the sun going around the earth. We've got the one galaxy. We've got the 5,000 stars wrong. we got everything is solid. We've got all these things. And we've got to realize some of the stuff we believe is going to be wrong. And listen to the people who are on the leading edge, even though they, they keep it to themselves. Because you got to remember, these guys are patents. Tim, Tim Taylor, who, who was in American Cosmic, he got this one invention. I remember him telling me the invention. He's an experiencer as well. He, he told me I had a meeting with him in, in, in uh, Pennsylvania and he knew I was into downloads and he knew I was into experiencers. He put me in contact with one experiencer who I've been in contact with, uh, who has been able to predict the future and has all sorts of bizarre experiences. He put me in contact with her. But he said to me, he said, you know, Grant, the morning I got that idea and I heard that he sold the company. I don't know how much the, the idea was of the company, but the company was sold on NASDAQ for $100 million dollars. So you got to remember that some of the people who are getting these downloads are making money off this. So Tim Taylor said to me, he says, you know, Grant, the night before, the, the morning when I had that idea, the last thing I remember the night before was a hooded figure standing at the end of the bed. I said, oh, really? Could you see its face? He said, not going to see its face. I said, oh, you should be regressed. You should go to Von Smith in L.A. and get regressed. He said, I might do that. And that's the thing. It's the same thing. It's the same story that you have with, uh, you know, uh, people with the hooded figure, with the with the beings. You see that with all over the place. And Tim Taylor talks about the fact that he has the contact modality. He says, I, 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 I go to sleep. I sleep for eight hours. I get up and then I go back to bed for one hour. You got to go back to bed for one hour. Then I get up with a tall glass of water. I sit on the, on the, on the deck in the sun and I start to drink the water and I start to contact the beings. Same as Gary Nolan. Gary Nolan says, I don't know how the download thing works, but he said, I know how to make it work. He writes the thing down, this classic thing. Write down the answer, what you want, put it beside the bed. He said, I'll wake up in the morning and the idea will be in my head. So this is the whole idea. All the ideas are out there. And these beings are in there. Is For example, 31% of all near-death experiencers say at one point during their experience, they knew the answer to everything in the universe. 40% of all UFO experiencers say at one point during their experience, they knew the answer to everything in the universe. And as they came back, they forgot it all. So that if that's true, the beings that are giving them access to everything in the universe have the answers to everything in the universe and people have had access and they maintain absolutely that they knew everything in the universe and they've come back and forgotten it. So all the answers are there and it's the ability have a contact modality to get in the field, get the material and bring it back. And the beings are in the field. They're able to access that material 
and come in here. So I don't think they need our, I don't think they need our gold. I don't think they need to rape our women. There's all these indications that they're not, they can be aliens. I always say to people, like everybody says, oh, they, did they scare you? Did they hurt you? Were you afraid? I, when I say somebody's got a being on the craft, they say, hey, let me ask you a question. Was there any clothes? And they go, no. And I go, don't you think it was kind of funny they weren't wearing any clothes? Yeah, that was kind of weird they weren't wearing any clothes. And I say, do they have any sex organs? And I go, hang on. No, they didn't have any sex organs. And I go, do you think that's kind of weird? And then I say, hey, the Betty Andreasen, 1946, first sighting. Her husband, 1946. So I say to them, hey, you had a sighting in 1946. You saw the being your whole life, right? And you're not like 85 years old or whatever. Yep, yep, yep. I said, hey, the alien never get any older? They go, no, never got any older. But aliens live a long time. Everybody's got that excuse. Aliens live a long time. But everybody will say the same thing. The alien never gets any older. Doesn't have any clothes. It doesn't have any sex organs. Or they're all wearing the same uniform or whatever. And then you start to wonder, like, I mean, are they really raping, raping our women if they don't have sex organs? Like, what's the deal here? Or, or they don't have any hair. Or the idea that they, they lost their sex organs because they didn't have sex. And that doesn't make any sense. So everybody's going to suddenly, 16, 17, 18-year-old boys are going to say, no, we're not going to have sex anymore. And, they, and then they're going to grow out of that. You start looking at the aliens, you start to realize there's all these weird things that say, hey, maybe this is an alien, or you even ask them. I asked a couple. Uh, Sherry Wilde wrote, wrote the book called The Forgotten Promise. She, the, she wrote the book, and in the book, the, the Gray said he was from Andromeda. So the publisher said, hey, can't be from Andromeda. He's from Zeta Reticuli. Grays are from Zeta Reticuli. So she goes back and says, duh, you, you say you're, uh, you're, uh, you're uh, from, Z- from Andromeda. He said, yeah. Well, you're a Gray. And he said, uh, are, you, what, are you actually an alien or not? And he said, no, that would not best describe who I am. I'm an etheric being on a mission in the cosmos for the creator. And I had Nancy Tremaine ask as well. No, not an alien. I asked the great, I asked these beings in, in, in England and they said, oh, if you want us to be great aliens, we can actually take you to our planet if you want. But no, we're not aliens. We've always been here. It's the idea. Everybody's an etheric being. They're pretending to be aliens. We're pretending to be humans. We come in. We are not the actor on the stage. We are playing an actor on the stage. We come in as an etheric being. We play a role. They're playing a role. And if you get, you may end up being a gray in your next lifetime. If you believe they're evil, you, what happens if you wake up to, when you die and you're a gray? Then are you now evil? No. Everybody's playing a role. Everybody's playing an, a, a game. And it's all etheric beings. All all of these different levels of consciousness moving around, and they're here moving into our consciousness. And we're trying to move into their consciousness, but we're still in the material world, which which holds us back from ever getting off the planet. Because you've got to understand, consciousness is primary, not matter. Consciousness makes matter, not the other way around. Okay. Now, do we coexist presently, or are these beings like from the future, in a sense? And what I mean by that, because I was just thinking. With this high consciousness, all this other stuff, this connection, we all try to, we all can do this, this remote view, and we can all have these abilities to do this. But I've always wondered, you know, when we get these answers from, how do we know it's a being and not just another human being that's doing it somewhere else in the other, t- other side of the world, and we're just passing thoughts because we're all going to the same, same place. So is it, are, you know, are we in contact with other beings presently or from another future place in time? And could it, is it possible that they might be a fully evolved human being? Uh, and, you know, is that, is that a thing? Well, I would say there's only here and now there's no future. So it's right. all here now. So there's even, there's a woman that wrote a couple books on um, psychic phenomena. She was, uh, she's at, at Columbia university talked about having meetings with all her past and future lives. 
and they were in a meeting. She had a meeting with them all. And, and the idea that you can actually go back and live a past, a, a, a life earlier or in the future. So there may be the, the people with information from the future who are bringing it into the present time because it's all the same thing. It's, it's all this field. You know, 40% of experiences say they knew the answer to everything in the universe. So it's all in this field. So you can, you would appear to be from the future bringing material, but you can go in the future and bring that material back as well if you know how to do it. It's all the ability to contact modality. It's all the, the ability to access. Everybody's got the ability, but it's like piano players. Some people can play, you know, play piano, and then there's people who are concert pianists. It's, it's, there's these different levels, and they're on a different level than we are, and we're just learning these contact modalities, and we're learning more of them all the time where people are coming in, and like even hypnosis and, and things like that where we're able to break through now, or even the idea where uh, I, re- I got a book called The Gifts coming out, and it talks about the guy who saved the most lives in the world. And his name was uh, Peter Sayar. He was a Czechoslovakian guy. He's the guy that invented, brought CPR to the public. So that saved a lot of people. And that's when people started having near-death experiences. He, his daughter died on the way to a hospital. So he came up with the idea of having uh, medics in the ambulance rather than just taking people in ambulance where they had medical equipment. And, and then he, the other thing he invented was uh, trauma units, uh, in intensive care units. And that saved a lot of people who would have this ability to come back from the death, come back from near-death experiences. Before 1975, there weren't many near-death experiences. Once we had CPR and, and I, um, intensive care units and stuff, people started to go into the field, to start getting in the field. And people started learning, or psychedelics, people using psychedelics to get in the field. So people have used these things and and brought back stuff. But it's it's... My belief is it's all here and now, it's all there, and and uh, we can access you, maybe cut off from accessing the future or predicting the future at a certain time. But no, I think it's all, it's it's all there. The inventions are all there, and uh, and you'll even get up in my inspired book. I actually show where you have six people all discovering oxygen at the same time. The uh, bell discovers a, the, the, the telephone, puts the patent in in the morning. A woman puts the same patent in in the afternoon. And it's like when it gets to the edge of the field where, where our consciousness gets, and then those ideas are filtering on the edge of the field and people are picking them off. But there, you see over and over again, people have these, these ways of doing it. And I even described the fact that, that um, uh, a, a lot of inventions don't come when people are thinking. It's when they stop thinking. So yeah, uh, two of them are invented on park benches where the guy's trying to work on an invention, he can't figure it out. One was the laser, one was the hologram. And they're sitting there and they couldn't figure it out. And they're sitting there on a park bench. One guy was watching a tennis game. The other guy was waiting for a restaurant to open. And suddenly, boom, the idea pops in their head. Same as me when I was watching Colin Andrews lecture. I didn't want to be in the lecture. I, did, I wanted to leave. I, it was an interest in crop circles or whatever. And I zoned out. So that's what I use. It's a contact modality where, you're, where you walk, where you daydream, and you, you, you shut down the left brain. And everybody can shut the left brain down. The left brain is always talking. If you can shut the left brain down, you, your right brain is the universal brain. It can go and grab the material and bring it back. So that, that's where that's where I the, I think the advantages of the beings. There's even a story that that's told. Uh, I don't know if you've interviewed Steve Boucher out of uh, St. Catharines, Ontario, but he had the experience where he's shown this invention. He's shown this thing where they they have this green thing on his arm and they show him the veins and then they show him the bones and stuff like that. Well, that and uh, Susie Anson was shown that he was shown it in 72. She was on board a ship. She was seen it in the 1980s, I think, or early 90s. 
and now it's been indented. It's actually exactly what they described, this green thing, and it shows your veins, takes the temperature of the veins are different, and it can show the actual veins in the arm and stuff like that. So you see some of this technology is actually uh, being being coming out now that so you can watch the what the the beings are the technology they've got and get ideas of, of how this stuff works and that's the idea that Gary Nolan says you look at the five percent anomalies and that's where you learn stuff you don't learn stuff by looking at the same old stuff every time we're shuffling puzzle pieces we're moving these puzzle pieces around we think if we keep shuffling enough times it's all going to fit together we don't realize that some of the pieces that we've got don't fit they're in from a different puzzle and we're missing pieces. And that's where we got to go. We got to, we got to, and that's why it's so important. You do it with your group. You got to listen to the experiencers. The experiencers are interacting with the intelligence. That's what Chris Bledsoe said. He said to these, all these high level intelligence people and, and military people who are coming onto his property. He said, why do you need me? What do you guys keep showing up at my property for? And they said, well, because they don't talk to us and it appears they're talking to you and we'd like to know what's going on. And yeah. that's what you do. That's what Ben uh, because we cannot control the phenomena, we watch those that the phenomena affects. So you watch the what the experiencers are saying. That's even the Douglas documents that I found from the Douglas thing that in the 1960s, Stan was work, about to work on that. That was uh, Robert um, uh, uh, Woods who was working on that from uh, Douglas Aircraft. And they were doing the same thing. They, they were working on talking to experiencers. The aliens tell you how the craft works. The same as uh, when, when I was talking to Betty Andreasen's husband, he was all mad because he was, they were tapping his, government was tapping his computer. I says, well, does your wife uh, ever draw what the, what, the, what the craft looks like and how, the, how it's propelled? He said, oh, yeah, all the time she's got all sorts of diagrams. I said, well, are you surprised the government's in your computer? I'd be in your computer too. I mean, if your wife's getting all this material, they're trying to figure it out because they, they haven't got those answers. They're, so they're watching carefully the experiencers without interfering with the experiences, but they're, they're trying to figure out. And that's the important part is not so much the sighting. It's listening to the experiencers. They will tell you, especially when they start telling you that they're flying the craft with their mind. Then uh, I asked, asked Ray about that. I said, Ray, we should take 13% of the people in the, in the free survey said they've flown the craft. I said, don't you think we should talk to these people who've flown the craft? He said, well, people report all sorts of stuff in the craft. I said, yeah, they do. But when they start flying the craft, don't you think we should talk to them? And they're all telling the same story that gives you this very important insight into the fact that you the craft is alive this idea that you if you're going to get artificial intelligence you need to have bioboards you need to have biology as part of the metal that if you have biology as part of the metal then it can hold intelligence and it can think the same as an ant or the same as a, a bird and if you can put a bird's dna type thing into metal then you can have this flying thing it's the idea it has to be a bio thing we're trying to build intelligent out of moving parts that we're going to get artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence will come by the way this experiences describe. They say the craft is alive. It's actually thinking that they actually grow the craft. Some of them will say they grow the craft. When you hear that kind of stuff, then you, I think you start learning instead of just going back through the material thing, this piece of metal, what's it made out of and stuff like that. I don't think that gets us anywhere. Do. Okay. So you know a lot. And, and we know a lot about what's going on, what we understand. Can't prove it. We want confirmation, but we know. So do we know more than the government that we're trying to get these answers from? Or do they know more than what well, we think so we know? I, I would always break up the government because people, I always tell the story that I was at the university. I was a, I was a facility manager at the University of Manitoba. 
I had keys to the president's office. I had the keys to eight vice president's office. I had the keys to payroll. I had the keys to uh, human resources. I had access, if I wanted, to every file in the university. Uh, and I, I had no idea what's going on. If I knew what was going on, do you think I would have left six months before they were going to buy out my position? And and that's the whole deal. I didn't know. I I just knew my little job. So when you talk about government, you always have to distinguish who in the government. So ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the government has no clue what's going on. Absolutely none. There may be a handful of people who don't understand how this thing goes on. That's what Eric Walker said. They are in a group of elites. When you are invited into the group, I would know. So it's a very very small group. They they hold it close. It's the whole idea, like the atomic bomb. They had thirteen mm-hmm. people that were read in on the whole thing or whatever. And that's the whole deal. Is is if you're not read in on it, it, it's it's the the idea that you can keep the secret better, the less people are read into it. So it's going to be very few people. So it may not even be government people. I believe that in the 1970s, once they shut Blue Book, Nixon moved it into the private industry. So it's basically held by contractors, by Lockheed Skunk Works, because you don't have to worry about government budgets. The way Tom DeLong describes it is there's money going in that the, 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 the company has the craft, but they don't own the craft. They have all the material. They don't own it. This this idea that there are government, there are big bankers who are putting money into this, and it's it's not owned by the government. It's not owned by anybody. And that's how they walk this fine line of of, of doing the research. So again, the government I don't think really knows. So when you see these these guys who were brought up in the first Senate hearing, they had no clue what was going on. They they had no they're, they're just low level guys. And that's that's was me in, in the university. I mean, I have all these keys, but I really don't know what's going on. I just know my little job. So that's the thing is, is who it is. And it's going to be a very, very small group of people that are read in. And the Wilson leak document basically described that there was really nobody in the government. The president wasn't read in, stuff like this. And they they use this to protect the president. Say, you know, if you if you get brief, you know, if something happens, we'll brief you on this. This is going on. But they don't brief him into it because then he's got plausible deniability, which these, these military guys had in the first hearing. They can say, I don't know what's going on. And they're telling the truth. If they know what's going on and they lie, then they, they're five years in jail. So they'll put these people who have no clue what's going on in front of the, the hearing. That's why I say you need to get Lou Elizondo in front of there, Eric Davis, Hal Putoff, and put them under uh, no immunity. And then it's going to unravel because they do know what's going on. And uh, I, I don't, they would, I think they'd probably say it's in contractor hands and they're having a hard time because there's stove piping thing where. You know, you have one piece, I have a piece. We don't talk to each other. We don't have the pieces fit together, stuff like that, that, that because there's so much classification, nothing's getting done. And, and they, they haven't, even Eric Davis said that. They, in 1989, they shut the program down and they take it off the shelf every seven or eight years to try to figure it out. But they can't figure it out. And Eric Davis said that publicly. And 89, as you will realize, is the date when Bob Lazar, when the whole Area 51 thing blew up. So they probably moved the stuff out of Area 51 to some. I heard one story was in the on an island in the South Pacific now, and you can only fly in there and stuff like that. So uh, the the government is a very big organization, and there are very few people who know how the how the pieces are put together. But there are people that I do know, and I, I've mentioned them a number of times that will know a lot of the pieces, how the pieces fit together, and that would be Kit Green, Jack Valet, uh, Jim Semivan. Uh, John John Alexander uh, and and guys like that. Uh, Eric Davis. Eric Davis for sure. Eric Davis is probably uh, the sharpest guy. Most people don't realize he had an intelligence background before he became a scientist. He was in U.S. Air Force intelligence. He's a very sharp guy. I talked to him a lot. I knew he was talking to, and he 
he was he was you talk about me or or you being obsessed with this eric davis is absolutely obsessed with this story absolutely obsessed at figuring this thing out and he's very very sharp guy and he's he's worked his way up through the ranks and that's how you do you work your way up and you get something from this guy and then you get a guy from above him and the idea is to keep it quiet it's called intelligence blowback once you identify that you've talked to somebody above you and you release what you were told nobody talks to you again and 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 that's what they were worried about with the the wilson leak document this intelligence blowback that's why they all denied it they had no choice to deny it they we we knew from word go that the Eric De, that um, Richard Dolan had been shown two pages of the of the document that was on uh, Jimmy Church six months before, where he's talking about this. And the guy that gave me the document said, "Did you give the document to Dolan?" I said, "No, I didn't give the document to Dolan." He said, "He's talking about the document. How does he know about the document?" And then I learned later that Dolan had been shown two pages by one of these people, and so he knew the Wilson leak document was real because he'd been shown part of it. And that's the whole thing. So you put all these little pieces together. Uh, and you realize 20 years ago, that's what Eric Davis knew 20 years ago. You can just imagine what he knows now. Mm-hmm. So this happens, okay? Where all these things line up, Congress, uh, sorry, this hearing happens, everyone's granted immunity. They do this. Yeah. What happens next? <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. I, I guess, oh, it may be the same as. We, we had the thing that we used to say that, like Stephen Greer, I wrote an article called the 64 Reasons They've Decided Not to Tell You the Truth. And some of them were stuff that Stephen Greer had put out, that when the government announces this thing's for real, oil will be worth nothing. It's going to go down to zero because everybody's going to realize you don't need oil. The stock market's going to crash. The stock market's going to melt down. And you can't open the stock market again because every time you open it up, it's going to crash because the oil, nothing's worth anything. All the, the things that use oil are going to go into the tank. And, and people are going to, you know, all the Christian people are all going to commit suicide and people are going to jump off bridges and out of windows and stuff like that. And what happened? Nothing. Absolutely nothing happened. And probably the same thing is going to happen. Absolutely nothing happened. Because you got to remember, it's what, Eric, it's what Eric Walker told us. You Why should we change the rules to satisfy your curiosity? For 99.9% of people, this is just curiosity. They could care less. It's you and I and about... Uh, 300 other people who are obsessed with this thing. We think everybody's obsessed. Nobody cares. And you, you can realize that with your relationships that nobody really cares. They, they may say, oh, that's kind of interesting. Oh, did you see the football game last night? They want to change. Or you go to a cocktail party or, or a birthday party or something. And somebody knows you're into UFOs and you start talking. And next thing you know, everybody's on the other side of the room. And yeah. it's you and this one guy. People, they just aren't interested. It's like they can't see the significance of this thing. You and I see the significance. We think it's the biggest story of all times. Everybody's got to know about this. Uh, especially with me, with reality, it's just how reality works. You got to realize, you know, this isn't real. This isn't real. Uh, are you Are you sure we're no, not the crazy no. ones? Yeah, it, most people are just trying to feed their kids. They're trying to take the kid to soccer practice. That's yeah. all they're interested in. They're really not for science. Fi, it'll be like interesting. They'll watch a documentary, which is where the consciousness is really moving. Where people are putting this stuff into consciousness. People ask, ask me why did Jim Semivan stay in T- TTSA? Because TTSA is working what Jim Semivan knows works. You put it in through movies. You put it in through uh, documentaries and stuff like that. And that's when you move the needle because a lot of people are watching and they think, oh, we're just going to laugh this thing off. They don't realize they're being programmed, subconsciously programmed, that when a kid watches enough sci-fi and enough uh, Star Wars, he believes this stuff's all for real. And, and, that's, and, and that's that what, helps with the conditioning, because if it does yeah. happen, we want to accept it as a human race. We like, you know, like like you said, there's 300 of us paying attention to this 300 yeah. plus. You know, that's that's yeah, giving yeah. that's given uh, yeah. a positive to that. I think it's less than that. But um, we know what's going on. We can predict it. We're seeing it. But what about 
like all those people you mentioned that don't know anything. So they get the same news. Aliens are real or actually the beings exist. We have material crash, all these other things, because they're going to see that'll be mainstream. Everyone's going to see it, you know, like. Yeah. yeah, I think everybody believes it now. I think if you were to pull, most people would say, yeah, yeah, there's probably aliens. They're probably visiting or whatever. It's like Max Planck said. It's like when, when Max Planck de developed quantum physics, he got a lot of backlash. And people don't realize that every time you come up with a new idea, whether mm -hmm. it's the, the second galaxy or quantum physics, and he said a new idea is not uh, accepted by convincing your opponent that you're right. It comes from funerals, one funeral at a time. And the new generation is not offended with the idea. So we're trying to convince our friends and neighbors. We're never going to convince them. I remember arguing. I, I never argued with skeptics. I, I knew uh, Phil Klaas a little bit. I had, and But I used to argue when the Internet was first came out, they had the, what are called boards, these, these chat boards. And there was only two big boards. There was the sex board and there was the UFO board. And that's all the, the two big boards. And, they were, and you had to type in, you log in at, 32 baud, you know, and, and get on. It was really slow and type and put your message in and stuff like that. And they had alt paranet UFO and alt uh, UFO and all these different boards and stuff. And James Obert, who's now still around the big skeptic from NASA. And he was on, he was on there. And I remember trying to argue with him back in the 1990s. And I, he would say something and I would have this elaborate thing. I'd work on it for two hours and I'd write this elaborate thing to him and I would put it on the board. And within 30 seconds, he would have another reply. And then I would do it again, two hours. I would, you know, make all these arguments, whatever. And then he would, he would come back with another reply. And I suddenly realized after doing this for about six months, what a total waste of time. Like you're never going to convince this guy of anything. So then I would, the only reason I get, get rid of him is I'd say to him, I'd say, James, are you working for NASA? Do you have a job? I mean, you sit on this board all day. I thought you had a job and don't you do anything. And then he would sort of back off. Or the, he got stuck. He, he he lipped off one time. If you know the Danny Sheehan story, Danny Sheehan tells the story of, of Marcia Smith. Does these two studies for uh, President uh, Carter? One on UFOs, one on extraterrestrial intelligence, and they're classified reports. And Jim and and Sheehan is brought in to talk about the religious implications of, of this. And he talks with this. Marcia Smith tells him the story that uh, Carter tries to get a briefing from from Bush, and Bush tells him. Curiosity is not sufficient need to know. You have to go to the House of Representatives Science and Technology Committee to get the answers you want. And so that means that Carter was not looking for the big UFO files, the Roswell files. He could get those. He was looking for the files he promised to the people because the House Science and Technology Committee is not going to have the Roswell files. There's no way. It's a pretty low-level committee. And, and she told this story. So Danny Sheehan told the story. And um, so then uh, James Oberg knew Marcia Smith. And he said, I talked to Marcia Smith. And she, she, and what she, what you put out isn't what she said. So I said, "Hey James, so what did she say? Tell me exactly what Marcia Smith said." He said, "I'm not going to put it out on the board." And I said, "Come on, James, what did she say? Come on, own up. What did, she, what did she tell you? What was your discussion?" And then he wouldn't talk to me. He just disappeared. But that's what people try to do. They sit there and try to convince their friends and relatives and skeptics, and it's not going to work. People have these ideas. That's why I always say aliens abduct young children. Because if they once you're 20 years old, you got so much garbage in your head, they're going to need giant rubber boots and a shovel to get in deep enough to put an idea. You get the kid before his ideas are developed and before he gets all the ideas about religion and politics and all this garbage in his head. That's why they grab the kids when they're young. That's when these kids are being trained. And you'll hear abduction experiences all the time. The kid's sitting in a circle and he can't see the instructor and they're levitating balls and stuff around the room. And they're all all these kids in a circle. You see they're, they're working with kids. 
And that that's what I, why I think they take young kids. And we're, so we're never going to convince people. All you can do is what you came to do. So if you believe you came here to do this on earth, do what you can, the best you can. And you, because in the end, all they're going to do, I believe, is ask you how to work out. So I, I agreed to this. I agreed to that. And you can't really say, oh, well, I was going to do that, but I was kind of busy. And, I, you know, I got carried away and I didn't do that. And, and it's the idea, what did we come here to do? So all we have to do is worry about, did we come here to do something? What are we supposed to do? And are we doing it? The rest doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. I can't change anybody else. All I can change is what I'm doing. And so I'm obsessed with this. And I believe somehow this is something I'm supposed to do. So I do it to the best of my ability. And that's all I can really do and put it out there and make sure that my files survive my death and that people get it and try not to keep any secrets. Try to say as much as I can on the open because I know that people want to know it. And it doesn't help me to keep a secret, to keep it away from people. So I try as, as, to be as open as I can that what I've discovered I put out there. And it, it gets me in a situation where certain people won't talk to me. But I listen very carefully. I think I know who the people are that she'd be listened to. And I record exactly what they're saying. And uh, I've done pretty well, I think. No, you, you've done quite well. I mean, I, 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 I'm in a very complicated situation right now because – when I started with MUFON, you know, it was on that dream and all this chase and I was following in the, in the wake and the shadows of all uh, individuals like yourself and, and Richard Dolan and, and, and a few others. And then I'm, I know all too well that with my ideas and my alternative thinking that, you know, it wasn't accepted. And I tried and I tried to get all these answers out. And then I'm in this position where it's like, no one's listening to me. And so I'm going to create my own, uh, you know, association to help and try and put my, my, my flag in the sand to get up to the top and do all these things. And then I have this and I'm so excited to have you on this podcast because it's four years, four and a half years in the making and, and a big moment thinking, you know, I'm going to get some advice on what to do for the future. But it's it's over in like a year and a half. So I got I worked so hard to get here. Should I just put my feet up and stop trying? Or like, what, what should I do? Because uh, what I'm doing is I'm, I've finally collected with all the struggles. I finally got a hold of documents from all the places that I know of. I could have documents that's never been seen before. I could yeah. have duplicates. I don't know. People weren't sharing it. But now I have it all. And, and I built a database where I'm able to put it on there and connect the dots and show timelines, show yeah. locations and all this stuff to figure it out, to help others like yourself. But. If it's going to be over in a couple of years, I can save the money, save the time, or should I keep going? Like, what you do mean, I what do? You mean the disclosure part? Well, I mean, it's connecting the dots, right? No, but it's I mean, you say to... it's over, but what do you mean by over? That it'll be disclosed? Well, if it's disclosed and they have the answers and everybody knows, you know, you well, have 47 to... years in, uh, ahead of me to know that this is going to happen. I'm just getting started. What am I getting started for? Well, but you become the authority. You got to realize when this thing gets yeah. gets revealed, they're not going to go to the government for answers. They're going to be trying to find people who have researched, and and then they come to you and I. We become. And as I said to Angela Joyner, if you remember, you know the Angela Joyner story. Angela Joyner broke the Stevensville, Texas story, and so she was doing the front page of this small town newspaper, and she had the court report and stuff like that. So the story broke. It was the biggest story they ever did. It was massive. They sold huge papers. And uh, the next day they sold huge papers or whatever. And she was working on the story and all these people were phoning her with sightings and stuff like that. And she kept working on this. And then they said to her, Angela, you got a story to write. You got it the court thing. You got the front page. Forget about the UFO thing. And she said, 
well, they're still phoning. There's people always phoning. What do I do with all the phone calls? They said, Angela, ignore them. So she said she would tell the people, phone me at home. Don't phone me at, at work. I can't work on this. I've got to work on my other stories for the newspaper. So then she, they started phoning her at home. Then she was at work and she was making a phone call to the Dallas Morning, uh, Dallas Morning News or Star or whatever it's called. And she was talking to them and a, another reporter overheard her and thought she was applying for a job with Dallas. And, and they called her in and basically said, you know, this isn't working out. Uh, they had they, they had her, her Rolodex in a box, a cardboard box and her computer. And she said, well, we just sort of parted ways. I said, no, Angela, in Canada, if you go into the, the boss's office and they got your Rolodex and computer, you got fired. And, and so she lost her job because of the UFO thing. And I said to her, I, and she's now dead. She died of COVID, but, and both her, her and her husband. But she, um, I said to her, Angela, and I said it in speeches, and her daughter knows I said this. I said, Angela, it may have been cost you your job. She never got a real uh, reporter job after that. She basically never had a job again in her life. So she gave up her career for UFOs. And I said, Angela, you may, you may have, suffered during this lifetime but i guarantee you angela 500 years from now when this story gets written up in history they're going to say some kid is going to say that's my great 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 grandmother and she did it and i'm proud of her and you got to realize that you're setting the the, the the history record the history of what you've done and when this thing breaks you and i are the people are going to go to there's nobody else to go to they've, they've got to they've got to go and they may keep going to lou alizondo for for the the crash stuff but uh, you and I record the history, and that's all you can really do. Same as Stanton. Stanton had this huge things, and so I've got his files, and I'm trying to get them out in line and go down there and, and gather all these these files and stuff and just get it out there because you got to remember that a lot of people aren't going to read it anyway. That's the other thing that I get the stand files, and I would give them to people. But people say, oh, I'd love to see the stand files. So I say, okay, I'll give you access to 6,000 pages of Stan Friedman's files. At one click of a mouse, and I'd say, if you see anything interesting, let me know. Nobody's see, ever contacted me back with saying, well, oh, you see this document or whatever? And that's the I, whole thing. Well, I have that link too. And I've been asking you like time and time and again, like, is it okay to release this stuff? Is it okay to release this stuff? And you've told me many times that you want it to be released. And I didn't know that. But so I can, so I clicked that link. I have the documents and I could add those to the database too and go through them. If yeah, it's, a, it's someone... up to you. Well, what I say about that is the archives makes me sign a paper that says, you won't publish these. No, you won't. I don't, you got to get permission to publish. Yeah, no, no, I get that. I'm a, but, but, I, it's, but I think the only thing that's going to happen is you put them up, the archives is going to come and say, you got to take them down. That's why I don't think they're going to do it. They, they could care less. It's the same thing that the archives with the archives that it stands for it files. Yeah. That's the first time they've ever done a file like this. They, they well, have, I have uh, uh, Arthur Bray files as well, all the way up to like, uh, like I have a lot of things. I have, I have Hellier's. Uh, documents from speaking with the Canadian Space Agency. I have everything uh, that Rutowski withheld. I have all of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, like I, it's just, it's just a matter of where to start. So, so what I've created is a database to, to not just put the documents online, because I've observed that people read them, they don't do it. I'm going to go through them and then take the who, what, where, and when, make associations, put them on a visual map, and put them on a timeline to put the pieces together, but I could get into any single batch of files. So if, if, if you needed me to focus on a particular batch, that would be priority to solving, perhaps giving you an answer to help you in that, what batch should I start with? Well, I just say, if you see something really interesting, a document that- Well, it's all like, interesting. Yeah, but, but there's some stuff like, for example, the Cuban, the Cuban shoot down. I mean, that's the yeah. first thing I was looking for when I went there because I knew that that Stan had been involved with this story about the Cubans scrambled jets 
and this UFO is coming in over Cuba and the, the wingman is, is, is broadcasting and he's, uh, it's picked up by U S Navy intelligence in Florida. And he says, you know, we're going to fire on it, you know, open fire or whatever. And suddenly the jet evaporates in front of him and he starts yelling, it's gone, it's gone. And, and, it, and there's this whole story of Stan having the guy that told him, you know, that, that this was picked up by U.S. intelligence and stuff. And the, the FBI was involved. They were going to go to the Cuban embassy and the FBI came and scared the daylights out of this guy. So that was the first thing I went for. So documents like that where you say, man, you see this document is really interesting or put it up. Just put an article and put this document uh, I put a few of them up where I've, you know, oh, yeah, well, like they're eventually what I'm looking for is best evidence. So like, I mean, I'll look through it. I mean, like as, as credible as everyone is, it's, I'm not looking for, I'll go through them. Trust me. Uh, like now yeah. that I, I have it, it's documented. I know for sure we're on the same page that I'm taking liability. I, I can understand the position of the library and all those other things. I signed those documents too. But what they told me is that I need to get consent from the people before releasing it, I happen to be an investigator that can locate people. So I get consent from these people to upload it and then it's fine. And the university has nothing to do with it. So it's, it's just a pass it's passing the information. So that helps me because. Yeah. yeah so see, there's some, a, some pretty interesting stuff there. And I, I whether, need to know where to start. Like, like there's, there's the, the correspondence between uh, Stanton Friedman and George Knapp is absolutely riveting conversation goes on for years the back and forth and he's explaining or all the all the documents from lazar you have the actual documents from lazar signing the contract with bigelow you have the court documents when he got the pandering charge and bob lazar's handwriting explaining all the stuff there's just unbelievable amount of material i think his lazar stuff is like 500 pages and he didn't believe lazar and that's why i say you can believe disbelieve doesn't really matter it's just that when I knew the head of this Lazar stuff, I said, wow, man, this is pretty cool. Because I had worked on the Lazar story when it was breaking. And uh, so stuff like that, just to get it out. I mean, uh, Isaac yeah. Coy is the same thing. He's putting stuff online. And he has the he, he, PD, he did the PDFs for all the Stan Friedman uh, files and stuff. So to me, it, it doesn't really matter. Like, same with the, uh, I don't know if you've got the, the Wilbur Smith files. You've got the Bray files. But the Wilbur Smith files, one guy went in. And um, he went in and photographed all the Wilbur Smith files, and that's thousands of pages of material, all the correspondence with the, the uh, Adamski and all the 1950 contactees and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so he, he came to me, and I remember I was at the archives, and they said, they gave me a file, and they said, you can only copy, uh, you can't copy the whole file. And I said, why not? And he said, well, you can't. That's the rules. You can't copy uh, the whole file. And I said, oh, okay. So where's the ph photocopier? And he said, it was down the hall there, two right. rooms down. I go down, photograph the whole thing, go take it back and go next one and photograph the whole thing. And I was there for a day. So I photographed maybe, or photo, photocopied maybe 150 pages. Then this other guy went in and he did the whole thing. And it's thousands and thousands and thousands of pages and all the, 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 uh, the, uh, manu the, the UFO letter they put out, uh, the, the journal they put out, stuff like that. And then he said, well, you can't, the, the archive says you can't, you can't publish it. So I went to uh, James Smith, who was Wilbur Smith's son. And I said, what is the, with the archives? Like, what is this deal that you can't photograph, you, you can't photocopy stuff and all this stuff? He said, what are they talking about? I gave that stuff for research purposes. They can't do that. So I contacted the guy back who photographed, photocopied everything. And I said, oh, tell them I've got everything. They can take me to court if they want. So I've got all the Wilbur Smith material and I could care less. The University of Ottawa thinks that, that, that they've got it and they you can't photocopy stuff and it's like 
total nonsense. The son put it in there for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was for people. And nobody's going to go to the archives to see it. People don't realize. Like, if you put your stuff in an archives, nobody's ever going to go to an archives. I went to archives. Nobody goes to archives. It's a lot of money to go to Stanton Friedman's archives and, and rent a, a place to stay for a week and then go there and plane flights and all this kind of stuff. And nobody does that. So it's a matter of getting the stuff out of these archives. And I've been to a lot of archives and I've got a lot of stuff is to get it out and, and get it up online where people maybe can read it. People still won't read it, though. People want you to spell it out. They want you to give it or they do the podcast because I, I didn't do the podcast until uh, not the podcast, but the, the, the YouTube until Desta Barnaby, who's my assistant, said to me, oh, this is what you should do. And I, said, I don't want a YouTube channel or whatever. And then I, I did when I started. I did a couple of Tom DeLonge things and I got 150,000 hits on, on my YouTube. And I go, holy cow, this is like five stadiums. And that's when I realized that that's, you got to go to the media that is. So you got to do the podcast. You got to do YouTube thing. That's where people are and you, you run it and uh, you'll, you'll get uh, uh, the audience will get bigger and people will pick it up and the people will watch. And that's, that's the audience. You can't, people don't read books anymore. People don't go to archives. So that you're doing the medium that counts. And, and this will get out. A lot of people will see it. Even if four or 5,000 people see it, that's a huge audience. I mean, of people who are, who are looking at it. And uh, and it's recorded for history, like Angela Jorna. You you go down to history as re- having recorded the story, and people 500 years from now will say, oh, that Ryan was so intra- so in- so lucky. He was there when the whole thing started. Man, I wish I was there when it first started and stuff. We're there when they, we're, we're like living at the time of Jesus. We got to realize this is an important story, and we got to do what we can with 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 what we got. I know I agree with you, and I thought it would be better just to show you exactly what I'm talking about because this is this is what I'm doing that's different because I know that everybody is doing it. So I I put some money and saved really really hard, put some money in behind this, got this thing created so I could show my work because uh, everyone talks about it. And, and then uh, and watching and reading all these papers and things like that, it's really hard to put the pieces together. But what I have here, let me just close this here on our map. So I got aerial activity and I got declassified documents. So let me just show for the purpose of declassified documents. Make sure that's all off. So if I zoom in here, what I've done with declassified documents is just as a tester. So I'm showing exactly where those events took place. Yeah. So this is like the first, you know, uh, committee meeting minutes on flying saucers, uh, which is a popular document that most people all know about. But if you click on that, there's a declassified document, but I've transcribed it so you can search it. Oh, wow. You can read it. Yeah. You can search the database and find it. Also, yeah. I've started doing these tags as I put these documents in, I have what's called the points of interest. So if I go to um, event, no, where is it? Resources, declassified documents, points of interest. The system is smart enough to create associations. So with three documents so far, I'm able to identify people where they work and what documents mention them. And as I build this database, I'll start to see, you know, Defense Research Board, but who are the people that are associated with the Defense uh, Research Board? Because when you get a redacted document, they change, depending on what's in that document, they, the person who chooses to redact might feel a different level of, of comfortableness, depending on the information that's there. So it's always done differently. But if you follow this pattern in association, you'll be able to connect the dots and figure and place people that are who are there that I'm what I'm also doing with the same documents as they go in 
um, not just having it, uh, placing it where it happened. I'm also showing when it happened. Where is it here? Um, it's hard to read this when it's on the screen. But every single case, once it's transcribed and put when and where, it's on this time. So mm -hmm. I can see when it happens. So every single document, sorry, and I also have civilian ones that I've investigated myself, but I just want to kind of show that when you investigate everything, all phenomenon, not just UFO uh, and paranormal, all that other stuff, go down to 68. You know, there's a there's a civilian sighting there. Let's go down further, actually. 52 is when I started. So there's the defense uh, defense research board meeting minutes on flying saucers and the first committee meetings and then Royal Canadian Air Force inter, uh, in, uh, interrogation report on flying saucers. So those three documents, I can see with the timeline that they happened two days apart yeah. and then two months later. So as I get these documents, because they come from different people, different places, um, and they all have different dates. But as I input the data, pieces will be seen and for researchers like yourself and myself who doesn't have time to do that it's a quick resource because once i add all these things in you can just scan through and be like oh i remember that i remember that document that happened two days later it kind of organizes everything so that's that's what i'm doing with the document so but i'm focusing on canada so do you want me to do the stanton freeman stuff because he's canadian but focused on america or like where, yeah, where, yeah, where would the say. answers come? Should I focus on Canada? Because you're focused on the states because I know the states got the answers. But are we not? I, I feel like we have the answers and no one's looking at it. Well, then you can use, but it's up to what you want to do. I mean, it's the Stanton stuff. Like he's got like key cases, like the Cuban cases are pretty significant. 67. Yeah, uh, but you know, every, every, what about, I want to find out what's going on in Canada. Yeah. Okay. So then, just do the Canadian stuff that Stan has. You yeah. have you just go through and, and link the Canadian stuff he has. Because I think sure. I think that we have the answers. I think no one because we because we declassify these documents back in like what 92, 95, and then got transferred over uh, from the National Research Council to the Defense Research Board or no the Department no Library of Archives, and then just sat there and no one's done anything other than uh, I'll just say no one's done anything. It hasn't been. It's been written about, but the pieces haven't really been put together, I don't think. Yeah, but that's that's where you come in, where you put it together, because there's nobody else going to do it. I mean, there's, there's no, and that's that, that's that's what I'm trying to do. So I just need to know what batch to start with. So yeah, well, if you're going to do Canadian stuff, then do Stan's Canadian stuff. It, the, okay. Stan just has the significant stuff that any major UFO case, Stan has a big file on it, and and that's the significant thing with Stan's files is, is you can go to any major story. And he's got hundreds of pages on it. So it, it's that kind of stuff. But if you're doing Canadian stuff, do it. And what, what we can do is we can do an interview where uh, I pointed out, you can go come on and explain what you're doing and, sure. and get out the word what you're doing. And, and you're going to get some people. The only thing I, I would say is with, with your thing, with my thing, is that when it comes to actual research, there's not many people who are going to be following up on research. They're, everybody's into you know UFO Twitter Go to yeah. UFO Twitter, see what they're saying every day. See if Lou Alzandro's had done another interview, and that's what most people are are. And, into. I, and I totally get that, and and I understand that. But I just want to make sure that the effort that I put in uh, matters. And I'll go back to the whole point about when you mentioned earlier about your your wives getting 
uh, to uh, not involved in it and, and thinking yeah. you're crazy and all that other stuff. If my wife is still listening, I would let's say thank you for putting up with my stuff. Putting up with my stuff <laughs> and not leaving me because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it obviously it does happen. But I mean, you know, like this is. I just, yeah, you are. You are. You're like a historian. So you're you're putting it in order and you're you're sorting it out and you're providing the historical record that people are going to be looking at. When I'm, they trying, try to what I'm trying to do, but I'm an investigator. So I'm trying to understand. I'm looking at the facts in order for me to understand the facts. I need all the evidence. Then I got to put all the evidence together and I'm making a crazy board. And once yeah. I get the crazy board figured out, a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense to me, but it would make sense to you if you just quickly scanned it when it's all together and be like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Click. So, so, so that's, uh, so that's what I'm trying to do is put it out there just like you, but in a quick way. So it can be read for the future who don't have time to read these documents because we, you know, we're busy or we we're stuck on the TV and stuck on the, on the cell phones and all these other things, trying to help the next generation get caught up because, no one's helped me. I had to learn all this stuff. I had to get all this stuff and learn on my own and then think I know something and then listen to you. And I know nothing. I know absolutely nothing about what's but going on. But you know on. more about the Canadian stuff. So if it comes down to it, when it becomes famous, then the Canadian yeah. newspapers and documentary people are going to want to do the Canadian story. And you've got the Canadian story when you've got it all sorted out and you've got it all indexed and stuff. And that's when you get called in to do documentaries and work with right. people like that it's just they're the canadians not the interesting story right now everybody's everybody's into lou elizondo and and that's all they're interested in but yeah but i kind of feel like we have the answers and it's hidden in plain sight because no one's gone through it that's why i'm yeah. focusing on it well what let's do is, an interview and let's let's point that out then you, you that's your okay. that's your stuff and you've you've done a good job you've sorted out which is what, what a researcher like me is trying to do is find patterns and stuff like that where uh, you've you've got, you've done a lot of work transcribing stuff and work working with that. So let's do an interview and let's uh, get it out there and see where it goes. I mean that's that's all you can really use is put it out to the biggest audience you can find and wherever you can find the biggest audience and and hope that someone sees it and uh, and contacts you and, and works together and that's the way it works. It's uh, you know sometimes it it seems to be going slow and then you get a break and you know you. I just, yeah, no, I, I get it. And I, and I appreciate it. I just, I just been trying to make sure that what I do matters. And a lot of people are trying, there's a lot of people putting effort in there. Uh, and I, I look up to you, I look up to, uh, there's very few that I look up to in this because I kind of feel like they're just doing it for the money and selling out and just giving up, but you're, you know, you're still trucking along and, and it's, and it's there. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So we got 10 minutes left. Uh, we skipped the commercial break and we kind of skipped the after chat. You did. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't want to interrupt you. This is great. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate that. Um, you did mention that you wanted to talk about the uh, FOIA from uh, Obama's files. Oh, yeah. So I, I filed for the Obama. That's what I did with the Clinton thing. Um, mm -hmm. When I did the Clinton thing, I, I was actually on Fox News. I was on uh, Associated Press contacted me. Washington Post contacted me. And they all wanted to know why did the first 11 FOIAs of the uh, 11 of the first 17 FOIAs in the Clinton library have to do with UFOs. And I said, because the way UFOs work with the library is it's first come first serve. So if you get it in before anybody else, you, you get it uh, done. And what happened is I got, I got in right at the beginning. I, I missed the Obama one. I, I, I don't know what the heck was going on. I was waiting for five years because they opened it up five years after the president leaves you get to go after his papers. 
and uh, you can file whatever you want. And if you're first, they got to file you. You got to they got to do your FOA first. So I was going to file that, uh, you know, one minute after 12 on January the 20th of, of this year. And then it suddenly it's like January 20th. I'm sitting there and it's like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, oh, no, I forgot to file. It's like I filed 11, like 24 hours, 23 hours later. So I got a couple hundred people in front of me, but I filed on everything. The same I did the Clinton. So I say, you know, I want all the Hillary Clinton files, corresponds to Hillary Clinton. I said, I want everything on John Podesta, UFOs, Area 51 and stuff like that. And it was like seven, almost 7,000 pages. Um, I filed on uh, Chris Bledsoe. I got 35 pages. And Chris Bledsoe is the one where um, uh, the story is told that he was his story was briefed to President Obama and Chris Bledsoe got a medal uh, for uh, and, and that had to do with healing this kid. It was kind of a long story. But so I wanted to get the exact story. And Chris said, no, I don't think they're, they're going to they've got my file. So I filed sure enough, 35 pages. This uh, famous Tim Taylor, there's like, I don't know, thousand pages or whatever that that may be applying so i, I basically you know throw like throwing darts at a board same as you're doing you, you just fire all these darts and hope that something hits and i know greenwald filed and he they were telling them twenty six thousand pages and it would take 16 years but i think they're talking about the file to do the whole obama collection 15 years but if you get your thing in first so i've got a couple hundred people in front of me but i filed for everything area 51 conversations with shirley mclean uh, the uh, the three major guys that DeLong had, uh, McCaslin, I asked about Robert Weiss, correspondence with Robert Weiss. It came back. They didn't reject it. So if they don't have any files, they reject it. But Robert Weiss, the guy that talked to uh, Tom DeLong in the skiff uh, and was on his on his committee that was helping him, uh, t- telling him stuff about UFOs. Uh, there's, I wasn't rejected. I can't remember how many pages Robert Weiss has. But I, I basically filed everything I could possibly think of, every name. And uh, there, there'd probably be 30,000 pages that they're going to uh, be going through. And then again, I'm going to put it up. And the Clinton stuff, I've never read. There's 10,000 pages of Clinton stuff. There, for example, the uh, you always hear Stephen Greer briefs the president. So he, he says, I briefed the president. And what he does, he sends a briefing in. And remember, the Obama one actually, or the Clinton one actually had on the front cover, it said, president did not read. Because you don't want the president getting dragged into this. You keep the president out of it. The president's a dummy. He doesn't know what's going on. Plausible deniability. You know, he said they, they bypassed him and stuff. The president knows what's going on. He's absolutely, if he wants to know, he can find out whatever he wants. But uh, so he, uh, Greer always includes like 600 pages of documents with his briefing. So you have this, this whole briefing thing with all these documents. So that's in there. And uh, it, it should be very interesting. I haven't got anything back yet, but. Once it starts to flow, especially uh, I asked for the briefing, everything, uh, Obama, any briefings he's gotten, stuff like that, the dates and stuff like that. And you never know. We may get something because the archivists, people people think the archivists are covering up. I've dealt with a lot of archives, and they are absolutely as determined to get the stuff as anybody else. They're just extremely interested in history. So archivists, when you go in, the, they'll help you look for stuff. They, yeah. The one actually sent me uh, a, Car- a Carter document that I'd never seen before. Uh, and so that, that's the big thing I'm doing with the Obama thing. I, I go after the presidents, even though I don't really study the presidents anymore. I'm still like a stamp collector or, you know, I'm still trying to collect everything I can and get it up there for everybody else. And maybe one or two people will read it. 
so I can help you with that too. So even though I'm, I've chosen and selected to focus on Canada, just because yeah. my observation is nobody is, and it, you know, and um, and I understand why because you can get the answer from that, and that's why I'm trying to go the other way around. But like, if if you have significant documents or anyone has significant documents to transcribe them, take there's an app that does it real quick. Uh, and to put it on the website, I can probably hammer through like 15 to 20 documents a day, you know, and get them on the website that way. So uh, like yeah. while I'm focusing on the batches that I have, again, needed to know which drawer to open uh, and needed to at least make sure that by doing that, it was useful. If there's anything that comes your way that you want to add to that, then you just send it yeah. to me and I'll throw it up there. Um, it, it doesn't have to be Canadian. I'm focusing on Canada, you're focusing on US, then we put it all together, then you can look at it and and all the pieces unravel. Yeah. Yeah, I do have the early Canadian stuff. I do the Canadian stuff, but I did uh, the early stuff. I got the transport files and the, you know, the... the uh, <clears throat> Send them over. <clears throat> yeah, well, the transport files, I don't know what I did with them. I, I, uh, I, I must have thrown them out or something, but the, the transport files, <laughs> I, the number... Uh, Why would you throw them out? Oh, I got so much material, and it was uh, sort of like uh, I. In fact, I was trying to find an original copy of the top secret memo because uh, the only one I have is the one Stan wrote on. He put his hand name on it. I'm trying to get the one of the original ones out of the, uh, the transport files. I think fifty three forty. I think is the number for transport files. It's like three hundred pages. They'll send them to you for ten cents a page or whatever they charge. Yeah, no, that, yeah, I had to pay for. Like I didn't have them given to me. I had to pay for them, and then. And by asking for all the ones that Rutowski had is how Rutowski got outed. So, you know, like, uh, but I asked him for them first and he wouldn't share them. So, yeah, I even got the ones I recently got ones. Uh, I don't know if you saw them. I got the ones for my well, uh, I've been collecting. So as you post, I've been saving some, but I mean, I didn't, po I didn't post them. I just posted the fact oh. that I got them and I read the first two pages and stopped reading. It was like, it was just uh, citing, citing stuff from, I can't remember it was uh, transport. I filed uh, all of them. When, when I heard Rakowski was outed on this uh, thing, I asked all correspondence with Rakowski, and then I asked for, uh, like, the tra I went to transport, I went to Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and I went to defense. I, it was one of those three. Mm -hmm. Sent me 60 pages or something like that with 600 sightings or whatever. I yeah. can send you that. I've got that stuff. So. so yeah, no, no, that's good. That's probably, yeah, whatever, whatever you got, whatever you need. And I, I found out that they're tricky too. And then the other game to play too is that somebody asks for it and then the other one can do an informal request later on and then get the files. And then they write an article about it and then become, and then they're super famous because they, they, you know, yeah. th those are things that happen too. So, uh, yeah. you know, so that's cool. All right. Well, we made it to the yeah. end. Thank you so much for your time. You did say you would end it at 20 minutes after. So, um, I know everybody knows where to find you, but just in case the slim chance that this is the first time they're hearing you, where where can people find you, Grant, to follow you in your journey? Okay, I don't have a website anymore. I actually shut the website down too. Um, uh, so I'm, um, it's all connected publishing. Uh, we put up some articles there. Uh, all my books, the, the books I've written are, are listed there. And most of the stuff I post is I post on... Uh, Grant Cameron at uh, the Twitter and then presidential UFO is my big Facebook site. So I'll put up uh, interesting stuff there. And uh, that's basically my, and then I have the podcast, the 
Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast, but I only do it once a week now, unless I've got special guests where I, I do stuff. And I'm going to the article I sent you that 30 page article. Yeah. I'm going to read. I'm going to read that article into the podcast. So it'll be about yeah. three episodes where I talk about reality and time, time and space, and what people say about time and space, and what UFO researchers and flying the craft and all this weird stuff that shows that uh, the UFO puzzle is a little bit more complex than people think it is. And I appreciate you sending me that. I apologize for not having time to read it before the show, but I am going well, I, to read it. Uh, I am yeah, I'll send it last minute. So I did, yeah, I that's okay. That's all. It's a whole okay. 30 pages. So I was like, ah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but no, no, but I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, CC, do you want to do uh, after chat? If so, let, uh, let me know your thumbs up. Okay, perfect. So uh, Grant, thank okay. you. Thank so you, Ryan. Much. Uh, you everyone, thanks for watching. Keep your eyes in the sky and heed the world. That's it, everybody. That is a wrap. That is the end of it all. Thank you for joining me tonight. I look forward to seeing you back next week, where we'll continue to have this conversation deep down into the rabbit hole in which we call the Ultra Spectrum. Thanks for joining us. I said that already. Oh, well. Fuck it. Heed the world. <laughs>